thanks everyone for joining tonight, the February Finance Committee meeting. Uh, we're gonna call this meeting to order with our roll call vote. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Esteen. Here. Trustee Fox will join us in a moment and Trustee Splendoria. Here. We do have a quorum, thanks. Thank you. Uh, next up, we'll move on through the agenda with uh, an approval of the January 6th minutes. I move approval. Do I hear a second? I'll second. All right. May we get a roll call vote, please? Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Yes. Motion passes, and I will text Trustee Fox right now. Thank you so much. Now we're going to move into uh, Section B of our agenda with operating reports. And I understand that we do have one piece of, one public comment rather, uh, just for a matter of, of decorum. Should we have the public comment ahead of the report or after the report? It's... Uh, it's your call. I think typically what happens is for uh, public comment related to an item, it occurs before the discussion starts. Great. So my understanding is that we have one uh, public comment from Ariana Casanova. Hi, good evening, everyone. Ariana Casanova, CIU field rep. I am here today to just, um, I wanted to highlight something that you guys are all aware of and heard have heard from me many times. It's regarding the IOP program. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've been meeting with Dr. Weiss and Dr. Barbaria to move along some of the issues that have been identified to our budgetary, finance, billing, registration issues with EPIC. And so I just wanted to make you guys aware that it seems it's gonna be a longer term issue to address. And that will poorly impact the finance report that you will all review and see because we cannot bill for multiple clients in a day. Epic was not built out to deal with some of the registration issues with some of the capacities that are needed in order for us to do the proper billing. And so I just wanted to update this committee that will be looking at finances that until we are able to resolve those issues, any finance information um, from the last 14 to 16 months is not clearly reflecting what the program is doing. And I want to thank you all for your time. And I just wanted to make sure that we were aware of that issue. I want to thank um, Maria Moreno, Dr. Weiss, and Dr. Babaria, and Dr. Freed, or Mr. Freed for trying to move that along um, and trying to fix the problem. But I think it's going to take a lot more for us to consult back with Epic since that part of the platform was never um, created. And I think that's it. It's Dr. Freed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chip. Um, and I think that's it. Thank you for your time. Have a good night. Thank you for your public comment. Do we have any other members of the public who wish to give public comment tonight ahead of this item? Seeing none, we will move on to uh, the Chief Financial Officer report.
So, Mike, I'm getting an error message. Hope uh, host disabled participant screen sharing. You might just want to try it again. All right. Can everyone see it? Yes. Great. Okay. So this is the uh, December finance report. Um, I'm starting with the volume highlights slide. A couple comments I want to make. Uh, just as a reminder, the budget was done without consideration to COVID impacts. So the um, budget here reflects what we would have expected our volumes to be had the pandemic uh, um, ended. So um, in looking at this, uh, we're missing our acute days target by 14.2%, which is slightly more unfavorable than year to date at 12.8%. Um, our length of stay is below budget and pretty much even with uh, last year. Um, if you look at the areas in which we're mostly or most highly impacted, it would be ED visits, we're off 22.6%. Um, and surgeries, uh, particularly outpatient, uh, more elective surgeries are off 21.3%. Although they are picking up because if you look at year to date, we were off 41.3%. So we are starting to see some um, more elective and uh, uh, surgical cases coming in. I want to point out observation equivalent days there because it looks pretty strange with a huge credit of 265. Um, what that was was a patient that was accumulating um, observation charges for almost 12 months. They were discharged in December uh, and so we have to uh, reverse out those observation days or those hours because they're not valid. We would not bill for uh, those, uh, those um, OBS days. This is something we've known about uh, when we went live with EPIC. We've been working with care coordinators on the bed tables to get everything um, fixed. Uh, but the way these stats work, we always wanna make sure that we can take last month, add the current month and get year to date. So we run all adjustments through. There's, uh, it's not hidden somewhere. So that's why you see it. And um, it now makes the year to date uh, accurate. Kim, question? Sure. Uh, I know you don't have margin information uh, by service line, but is it possible for you to, on a very high level comment on which of these volume categories are the more profitable for the organization? you know, between acute days, ED visits, surgeries, and so forth? Well, traumas would, would probably be the most profitable for us. Uh, surgeries would be, a lot of it depends upon the payer. So um, more than it does the service. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Do, do, do some of these normally have a, a, a better payer mix than others? Uh, you know, I really have never sliced it in that uh, in that uh, in that way. You know, with Epic now, we could actually you know look at payer mix by K 
categories, whereas before, you know, we had five or six different billing systems and it would have been a really a challenge. So I can take that as uh, an ask for next time if you'd like to know if there historically is differences in the payer mix. We don't have a lot of commercial business, so I don't expect there to be, but I have not specifically looked at it. Well, my overall thought is just that as we look at volume variances, you know, if we could kind of develop the understanding of which volume variances are more significant to the bottom line than others. Yeah. Do you mind speaking to which payers are uh, the most profitable? Commercial, um, and then probably Medicare. We, uh, for our fee-for-service Medi-Cal, we probably get uh, maybe about 70% of our costs reimbursed. Uh, uh, I think in the in the Whitley Phase One report. It gives a whole uh, picture of every payer and you know kind of how much of our costs we're getting reimbursed. Uh, we can you know go back and 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 uh, take a look at that. Um, the supplemental payments are you know almost forty percent of our net revenue, so they have a how we allocate Measure A or um, uh, and other supplementals does make a big difference. Um, just to ask another question and maybe flag for future, in the last uh, meeting, we talked about, um, oh gosh, we talked, gosh, you just left me. We talked about payer mixes and why some payers have com contract with us according to site. And I know we're trying to figure out billing by sites and, and, and financial reports according to each service line. Um, but I would like to revisit whether or not it makes sense to have contracts that are system wide, or if it makes sense to only have contracts by service line. So we have a strategy that we are trying to implement. And so I'd like to come back and share that um, presentation with you. It's a deck that ELT approved. Um, probably in the last, uh, probably six months, eight, no, well, probably about eight months, seven months, eight months ago. And we've been working on that strategy and uh, we are bringing an update to ELT here in the next month on how we're doing on achieving it. And it right. goes into who we're contracted with historically, where we think we're below or above market and what our next steps are to get contracts system-wide or not. What, what you know, some of the parameters around um, how we're negotiating. Obviously, we have to be careful because we don't want to, um, you know, to discuss uh, individual contracts with individual payers in this forum. Thank you. Um, and Kim, I know this is not um, necessarily your domain. I don't see Dr. Jamaluddin or Dr. Siddharth on, on this team, but I'm just like really at the PES days like what was budgeted and what was our um you know um actuals in december just kind of wondering about that a little bit like how how that was so off uh, yeah I'm, I'm here uh uh Steve energy uh, i haven't uh i haven't looked at at it i haven't I'll, I'll take this on and look into it why what is explained what uh, what we know uh, what we know is that 
really we have been having a much more effective throughput in the PES. But I will uh, I'll take this on and get back to you. Thank you. On the uh, skilled nursing, there's a, a nice bright spot there. Uh, the uh, COVID quarantine unit at Fairmont is up and running and, and um, <laughs> quite full. Uh, and it is definitely having an impact on throughput and it has allowed us to increase our census. So you can see the numbers look quite a bit better uh, in the December compared to year to date. On the clinic visits, um, we're just slightly below budget for December and year to date, we were actually slightly ahead. So the telehealth visits have really helped in regard to um, getting access for patients at the, at the clinic. Any other questions on volume? All right, All right so this is the summary of the financials. Uh, we're currently at, for the month have a negative um, just about um, well 3.9 million against a budget of 12.6 so it's a big miss of 16.6 million year to date we have a loss of 34.3 million compared to a budget of 6.2 so uh, we're off by 40.5 million um, and when you look at EBITDA, and again, for everybody, EBITDA is earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization. It is basically what I'm calling our cash flow from operations. So we had a uh, loss of $2.5 which is 16.7 below budget. Currently, year-to-date, we're $25.7 million um, loss of cash. And that is 50.5 um, worse than budget. So we'll talk about some of the details. Here's the revenue side. Um, right away, you can look at the gross patient service revenue. We know our volumes are down. And sure enough, there's our gross patient revenue off by 30.8 in the month or 9.9%. Year to date, we're off 196.6 or 11%. Um, and that correlates pretty much with the reduction in volumes. Um, you can see our net patient service revenue there at 46.6. That represents a 16.7% collection rate, which is actually pretty high. So if you look year to date, we're at 16.4 and we are at 16.7 that's quite a, a a nice pickup and it's above budget of 16.3 that's because we did have a million dollar favorable medical cost report that's in net revenue and it's also because when we did our financial model we're starting to see the uh, a higher collection rate on paid accounts so when we're doing our model it's improving the net revenue. And we've been, uh, that's something we've been talking about over the past several months. Um, we've been showing the EPIC reports for cash. Um, Terry Manifesto uh, is gonna present later tonight where we uh, stand compared to other EPIC customers, um, but we are doing nicely in our collection area. When you look at other governments, um, for the current month, there's a negative variance there of 11.8 million. That is because we budgeted to have received 
11.7 million from the county as a settlement for FY20 Behavioral Health Services. That uh, treatment in the budget is consistent with what we have done in previous years. However, this year we actually got 12.9 million from the county during our audit. And so as a result of that, the auditors had us put that money back into FY20. So we're gonna have a permanent timing difference with the budget of 12.9 million. But overall, we still expect to get the entire amount we put in the budget of 15.6 million and achieve the contract maximum with the county of 43.9. So if you look year to date, um, there's a variance there of 6.9. Um, that is basically the, the 15.6 million that we budgeted for the settlement, less the funding from CARES, the 8.4 million which we were, thought we were gonna to have to record last year that we actually recorded in the current year. So um, lots of moving pieces, but at the end of the day, for all of you, it, it doesn't change anything from what we budgeted. It's not any new information, it's just timing differences to budget. And that timing difference is really the biggest component of the bottom line variance for the month of December, right? Correct, yes. And then contract maximum with the county. Yes. So the way the contract with the county works is there's a, the board of supervisors approves a maximum amount that they will pay. And that was for um, last year, 43.9 million. Uh, it's the same this year, although we will have a negotiation with the county coming up and we, you know, we'll, likely ask them to see if we can increase that contract max, but we have to go through that process. Uh, but right now it is set at the 43.9, no change from FY20. Thank you. Uh, so the good news was that the uh, Alameda District Board um, transferred over 1.2 million uh, over to Alameda Health System. This That was tax money from last year that we didn't expect to get. So that was a a positive um, to the budget for this fiscal year. Any questions on revenue? All right, on the operating expenses, um, we, for the month, we're at 92.5 million, which is 2.8 and 3.1% unfavorable. So far this year, we've been running favorable uh, which is what you would expect because our volumes are down. So there should be um, expense and labor savings. Um, so this month is proportionately um, unfavorable compared to year to date. But what this does show you is we have not been able to flex down our expenses to match the reduction in revenue. I'll talk about labor on the next slide. For the month, there's just a couple of variances I'll talk about. First one is materials and supplies. Um, we have an unfavorable uh, 571,000. We did budget that there would be a rebate um, in the budget this month of 175,000. We did get that rebate. We just didn't get it in this month. So that's another timing difference. Um, in addition to that, you know, we 
uh, we do have the additional costs for COVID treatment, uh, the cost of the viral drugs, the cleaning supplies, and the lab reagents. That's uh, consistent with, with what I've been reporting all year. The second one there is under general and administration. There's a negative variance there of just about 900,000. Um, we discovered that there were additional invoices related to the strike coverage. Um, we, uh, we needed to pay a management fee, housing and travel that is just getting trued up and getting invoiced to us. And so I did put an accrual in of a million. I still have not done the full reconciliation. So I will have to come back to you and update the cost of the strike total number once we get that reconciliation done. But we did want to uh, recognize that we will have this additional cost. On the year-to-date basis, um, purchase services are favorable 8.4%. And that is driven, um, it's basically across all departments because of the lower volumes. However, there's a couple significant variances that are, um, that are surfacing. There are lower emergency food and shelter costs, and uh, it's partially offset by higher laundry costs needed for, for COVID. And um, for materials and supplies, um, I mentioned already that the you know, year-to-date we're running quite negative for those COVID-19 um, costs of the antivirals, the cleaning supplies and lab reagents. And just to remind everybody, at the end of the report, I kind of have a COVID-only slide. It, it doesn't include the treatment for COVID patients, but it does include these additional costs that we've incurred. So it's there at the end of the report in the um, exhibits. Any questions on those expenses? All right, so this is the labor slide. Um, here we've uh, we've kind of broken out the major components of labor. Um, how I've been looking at this because of the leaves of absence for COVID is I'm reporting those separately. So for the month of December, we paid out 1.6 million for uh, the paid leave of absence codes within our Kronos uh, system, which is what we use to pay employees. Uh, and so I look at the combined salary and wages and registry, and they total 1.4 million negative. And that's really being driven by the fact that we've got those LOAs, we're having to have to pay a much higher rate for registry than we historically have, offset by the fact that we have lower FTEs than budget. So typically what we would have expected is that we would have flexed up more with higher volumes. And um, obviously we're below budget by 32 in the month of December. You can see paid FTEs and I'll show you a slide on that hmm. next. Kim, will there be, a, will those LOAs sunset at some point? I mean, are, are they gonna be carried over to, to next year's budget too? Yeah, so the folks were entitled to 12 weeks total. They could do it all at once or intermittent, depending upon their personal uh, situation. But no new leaves of absences will be approved under those that set of rules. So we should see the leaves of absences drop and our employees coming back. In fact, I know that is the case. Uh, so uh, good news.
And just to point out on the uh, retirement there, because it looks so strange, the credit there. So what happened is after we did the interim budget, we got the results from the actuary on what our expense would be for this next year. The returns were great. Uh, so therefore our overall cost is gonna go down. And so how we handled this was when we did the final budget, we did a true up entry, which now will from this month through the end of the year, you'll see that there's not gonna be substantial variances, but year to date, you're gonna have this funny um, uh, large variance in the GASB 68 and 75, which is the long-term portion of the funding, because I couldn't go back and restate the first interim budget. So um, yeah, it's uh, just one more comment on that, just to make sure everyone understands. So we have a, we have a balance sheet liability that needs to that is because of these higher investment returns we um, don't need to have that high of a liability so what's happening is we're reducing it on the balance sheet and then recording it each month which you know we could have done this all at once and just taken care of it but because of the timing with the interim and final budget we ended up doing it by month and i've just left it so it's gonna it looks a little strange but i think once everybody understands what we're doing and it's consistent with budget, I think it will uh, be all right for folks. So here is the uh, FTE trend slide. Um, and you can see there's a, a gap between the budget and actual, and that represents vacancies. And this organization has always had quite a bit of vacancy. I could go back a long time. Uh, you know, we're working on this as an organization with labor standards and trying to to trying to to better reflect what the true FTEs should be to run the organization. Um, but the leave of absence is kicked in there, and that uh, that ate up the entire variance, which is again driving that negative variance in our in our labor cost. Um, in December, we did see the big pickup of of COVID leaves. I think it's because people knew it was going to be ending. And so they, they maybe perhaps took more in the month of December. Maybe it was because of holidays, but we did definitely see the pickup. Um, and I do have the comments on the strike there and I will have to come back and uh, give you a final number once we get the reconciliations trued up. Any questions? I have a question about COVID leaves. Um, seeing as how COVID isn't going anywhere and provider burnout is a real thing, what are COVID leaves going to look like in 2021? So they will go, we will use our existing policy, um, you know, leave of absence policy. I don't know, we can, maybe Tony's on the phone. He can talk a little bit more about that, but we won't be giving the extra. So we offered every employee that, you know, that had a situation uh, that qualified 12 weeks of paid leave. They didn't have to use any PTO. They could just take that time off as paid. Uh, so that benefit will no longer be available, but folks still have their other benefits. They have PTO, they have sick leave, they have all the other benefits. And there's obviously, um, you know, legal, um, uh, labor rules that have to be followed. I don't know if Tony wants to weigh in. No. Okay, he might not be on the line. So if you want me to take that back, I can 
tell you what our, you know, what the current benefit levels are and how they're triggered. If you'd like, this might be different by each union as well. Yeah, I just wanted to know about COVID leave specifically. Okay. So you answered it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And then this is the balance sheet uh, slide. A um, couple things here are uh, AR days uh, did decrease, which is consistent with what we've been reporting. We have an update, so I won't make any more comments on accounts receivable tonight. Uh, I'll let Terry do that later. Um, I do want to point out that the net position, um, which is basically our fund balance, has gone from 277.787 to 311.812. That difference is our loss. You would expect that our NNB should also go up because we would need to draw on the line of credit to be able to pay for operations. And you can see it, it is not. And so I will go to the next slide here. I guess I'll have to remember. Uh, Maybe I, I don't want to go out of order. I'll go back to that. But there's offsetting items that are, are, are making the, the line of credit look very nice here. And I just don't want, I don't want to mislead anybody. So we'll, get, we'll come back to that here in a couple slides. This next slide is the net county receivable slide. Um, what this shows is what is due to and due from the county. And um, what's important to note here is the capital designation receivable. That is the $7 million that um, we fund and get back from the county. And so we've made two years of payments and have not gotten that back from the county yet. We'll make a third payment in June. Um, the county, uh, I've spoke to the staff folks uh, with the county and um, they are looking at our ongoing EPIC costs to be able to transfer that money back to us. Um, Mark, Amy did a presentation to the, to the staff folks and uh, they say they have what they need. So I'm hoping that we'll get some traction there for that money to come back. And then for the capital cost payable, um, we just submitted a few more years of finalized cost reports, which means we'll be sending another 1.2 million back to the county soon. They uh, they already owe us uh, 4.4 million, so that will make it go up to 5.6. Then we need to figure out how we're going to transfer back to uh, pay for um, you know the facilities that are owned by the maintenance on the facilities owned by the county. Kim, that. This is all a little confusing to me. I don't know about anybody else, but the capital designation receivable, you said we fund it and then we get it back from the county. Can you explain that one? Sure. So uh, I wasn't here. So <laughs> there is an agreement with the county that um, basically was to help us fund EPIC in some manner. And so um, we would provide $7 million of funding to the county and then they would uh, give it back to us. So it's kind of a, a wash, but it was a way of setting aside funds to pay for it. And it looks like Mike wants to weigh in here. Yeah, Kim, I, 
So uh, under the permanent agreement, there's a, an obligation for us to set aside that $7 million um, uh, in it, the capital designation fund. So that obligation preceded the uh, financing uh, plan that was developed for EPIC. It wasn't just specific to that. So uh, we that money had been going in there according to the schedule uh, after some other obligations were paid off. When we got to the point of looking to um, provide the uh, funding plan for EPIC, uh, we identified that as a potential source, made the request to the county, and so that's how that all has played out. And Mike, so that would be, so we are owed 14 million for two years, 7 million and 7 million. And then we also have to make the payment for the third year. Correct. When we haven't got the two years of payment yet. That's correct. And this was in our budget presentation and in the cash flow. And um, this, we've been talking about this, which is kind of why the slide got put in here is that um, our previous finance committee and CEO wanted us to track it. So that's kind of where this slide, why this slide is in the deck. So I have kind of a general question, but it relates to all this. And how do we get cash, since the county sweeps all our cash basically, how do we fund our routine capital budget? So everything goes against the line of credit. So every time we make payroll, every time we pay the capital, or if we pay a vendor run, it we ask the county for those funds and the transfer happens and we make the payment. And they sweep all of the cash that gets received from our net from any source and it goes into the treasury and all of this nets out on the NNB. Okay, so that covers the cash part of it, but how do we, get, do we have to ask approval from the county for certain capital purchases or a, a, a approval over a certain level? No, we, we do not. We do have a capital budget that gets approved with the operating budget and we, we provide uh, information on what we plan to spend uh, and we share that with the county just as we would our budget, um, but it doesn't require approval. So that then I assume gets approved by the board as part of the budgeting process? Yes. Yes, yeah, it gets approved by the board, but because of this like sweeping our revenues and then getting it and sometimes not getting some of these things, we do have a lot of deferred capital costs because if it was, you know, we well, um, because of the revenue structure and when we get you some. Have to, we have to budget capital within the boundaries of the NNB and all that. Correct. Yeah. So. Kim, Kim, if I may, this is James. Um, so I, I did not understand that we had not received any of the the reimbursements from the county for Sapphire. So if you and I could have a conversation, because I, I thought I heard you say that we've been told by the county that everything is in, that they require, but they've yet to to activate this. And so if you and I could have a conversation offline about kind of next steps on that, that would be great. Sure. Um, hopefully we'll get some traction. So we, we've been working on this for some time. Can I just ask one more follow-up regarding that? Uh, you keep talking about time variances. Will those reimbursements show up in a different fiscal cycle? How does that work? 
So these, uh, these, this is not actually income or expense. It's, uh, it's, um, how do I explain that? <laughs> it's reserves. So we, so the money, so when we give them 7 million, we actually do. So our, our line of credit, when we give them 7 million, will go up, right? <laughs> And then when they give it back, it goes down because everything nets out to that line of credit. The, these items are not in the budget. They're in the cash flow. Yes. In the so cash they're flow. in when I presented the the mm -hmm. when the last board approved it, and when I presented to this to the finance committee our or when I we did the uh, the orientation and I shared the cash flow, these amounts were in it. So, as part of the where we thought the NNB balance would be, we assumed that we would get this money reimbursed from the county. So it's another thing that kind of deflates or inflates, but the inverse net negative balance. Yes, but I think um, you know we we we. We've worked with the county. Mark Amy did a great job. He presented all of uh, the whole, you know, where we are on Epic, how much it costs, what our ongoing costs are. And they said they had what they needed to push it forward. So hopefully, you know, that the 14 million will be coming back soon on the capital cost. That one's a little more complicated because it's getting um, the, the county folks to agree that these items need to be fixed at these that the county owned buildings and having alignment with what the priorities are so that one we've been we've had several discussions now uh, so we'll we'll we've got some ideas but we still um, haven't uh, got that one over the finish line any more questions So uh, Trustee Fox asked for a um, uh, information about all of our open settlements for uh, supplemental revenues and also for uh, cost reports. So this this uh, document here is a summary of it, and I will send you a file, Trustee Fox, tomorrow that has all the detail. So okay. this one groups years, so you can't see each individual item, but um, the, the team has created a spreadsheet for you that has every single one. So what this is telling us is that it, for from FY02 to FY21, so that's everything under the as of 1231-2020, they're grouped by those years and how much is sitting on our books. And there are receivables and there are payables. And when you add those across to the net balance, we have a net payable of 7.4 million on our books today. So that's what that's telling us. You can see that some of this stuff has been on our books for a very long time. If you look at the FY02 to 18, you can see some of those recoupments we've been talking about. There's the old waiver, 71.6 million. There's the FQHC of 42.1. There's the physician spa of 26.9. The only one that's not really clearly identified is the Medi-Cal cost reports, which um, if you look over at the cash flow for FY21, so now I'm, you know, one, two, three, four, 
five columns over the 30.3 million. There's positives and negatives, which are which is why those numbers aren't saying 30.3 million in the 02 to 18 uh, column. But the reality is we expect to have to pay out 30.3 million. We have March here. We were told um, by CAPH that those old cost reports would be settled at the same time as the old waivers, the 71.6 million there. So those items both say that we would we plan to pay out in March. It's already February 3rd. I don't think we're gonna get the demand in the next two weeks, but I don't know. I don't have any better date. What we decided to do is just move it out a quarter at a time. So I would move it out to June if I don't have any better information in our in my next report to you all. But what this tells you is that we have um, we assume, we think that 65.9 million will need to be paid out in cash this year because of these prior year settlements. A question about that? Yeah. So so that based does that basically mean that over prior years we were overpaid by 65.9 million? That's part one of my question. <laughs> I would say that I'd go under 0, 02 to 18 and see the 166.9 okay. and go there for the overpayment. <laughs> okay, so part two is this. If all of our cash receipts go against the NNB, then isn't it true that the drop in the NNB that we've had over a period of time in prior years, a lot of it comes from the fact that we were overpaid and it really is not a uh, like a, a permanent uh, a drop in the NNB having to do with improved performance. It's a drop because we got overpaid and it needs to be paid back. So uh, because these items are on our books, it depends upon what you're, what you're saying, performance improvement, because if we've, we've accrued the liabilities, our net negative balance is accurately reflected, right? But the net negative balance is cash, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, me bad. Net negative position. Okay, that's act. Yes, I agree that that's accurate. But the net negative balance, to the extent that I, I think I saw in the Whipley report or somewhere that it had gone down over a period of years before this year, or before the last year and this year. Yeah, that that is a fair comment. And the fact that it's gone down isn't because. Uh, of any of improved performance totally or maybe substantially but really because we've been overpaid on on many of these things and the cash has flowed to reduce our nnb yes and that's a, a flaw if you're that's the flaw in all of this if you just look at the nnb balance you're missing a whole bunch of other stuff and that's why on this last slide here i pointed out the uh, net position here is decreasing, even though the net negative balance looks to be fine. And when, when we pay these uh, supplemental settlements back, will we be having to pay interest also? So that's a, a, a good question. I would say probably yes. Uh, a lot of it has to do with who we owe it to. So. There was the safety net care pool, which is a pool of funds for public hospitals. And so as all the P14s get settled 
and all the appeals get done, there'll be a final, um, there's a model that CAPH does that will tell how much we owe everybody. So I know for a fact we owe the UCs quite a bit and that the, the more the, the private um, hospitals tend to um, be paying out rather than receiving. Now I can't tell you exactly in the model what's causing that or what caused the original model to say that those that the community hospitals would need more funding than the UCs. But um, anyway, when they settle that all out, it will be with interest, and it, those are big numbers. That's seventy, you know, that's most of the seventy-one point six million dollars. Is that safety net care pool? And, and the, to the extent that we had based that this situation has provided cash advances to the county, so to speak. Okay, and the county has had the use of that money for years and years in some cases. And the county is, is able to invest that money and earn earn something on it, or there's a time value of that money anyway. If we then have to go back and pay interest to to the to the UC system or whoever we owe it, we owe interest. Would it make sense to to say that the county should help us pay that interest because they've taken advantage of the fact that they've had this excess cash all these years? Yeah. Well, I'm sure we can have the discussion with them. I think. Uh, you know, these uh, liabilities have been on our books for a long time. The county is fully aware of them. Um, uh, I, I know in discussions with them, we're waiting till things are finalized and then we'll have a conversation at that time. I have shared all of my files with the county uh, on, on everything I know about, you know, the different components of these waivers and what's owed back and forth. So they, they are, you know, very much aware of how it all works and and how these calculations have been made and and that is why when the governance restructure recommendations come like it really has to be holistic looking at operational uh, you know governance fiscal like what are all of these things that have uh, you to 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 make sure that whatever structure comes up sets sets the county and AHS because we have absolutely shared mission for success. We can't be lurching uh, from one and given the fact that, you know, you don't, the, the reimbursement that you get for the care you provide is not, you don't get enough. But one just looks at, uh, depend on supplementals and things. So it's it's a little like, it's more nuanced than just saying that we didn't have improvements and that we got more because of the supplementals. It is very, very true that we do get more supplementals. And there are also a lot of like, you know, internal work that's happening on like revenue improvements, expenditure reductions and things. So it's like, it's, it is nuanced. Well, I think also, Trustee Fox and Benerji, you guys are making great points that if supplementals are 40 to 50% of our revenue, and then they get swept away from us, yet the county still wants us to be whole on our net negative balance, we're losing this entire operation every single fiscal year. Um, so yeah, as we discuss governance and whatever negotiations need to take place with the county, this has got to be considered in a very, very meaningful way. 
Now, there are huge timing differences with these supplemental funds, and there are huge numbers. And um, I think that's why the county has asked us to do that separate schedule, which I'll show you in just a minute. But I want to make one more comment on this slide. So it's easy for you to, to look at this and say, okay, our current net payable is only 7.4 million because we have these receivables coming in. But what you have to remember is that we need those current receivables to pay for current operations. So uh, I know I've had other trustees ask me, say, well, heck, you know, that all nets out, that shouldn't be a problem, but it is a problem. A huge problem. And to imagine the scary possibility that these uh, old waivers may come due and payable in full um, upon demand is even more frightening. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that there's a possibility to not have to do that. But if we did, that money would eventually come from the county as our main source of finances. So if we're working with a net negative balance that's unrealistic from the start, that could be a source of relief and um, reconsideration. Yeah. Plus we have that, that one giant number, $114 million for the new supplemental payment on the Medi-Cal managed care. And if that takes a few years, uh, you know, that $7 million deficit number, you know, that's that's really way out there in the future when we're going to get enough cash to bring us to that number. That's one of the things we're seeing as these supplemental programs become more value-based. That means reconciliation and more time passes before we get the funds. Can I ask you one more quick thing? I'm sorry, maybe you can answer in a couple of sentences, but can you define the Medi-Cal waiver or are there, there's an old waiver and a current waiver and I'm... So I'll, I'm gonna send you the definitions and, okay. and I have a, a list of definitions to send to all the finance committee. I just didn't get it posted in time okay. last week, but you'll all, right. all get that. Okay. And uh, yeah, I think if I start on this, we'll, we'll be... This okay. conversation will go for some time. <laughs> no problem. Okay, so here is the uh, line of credit. Uh, this is the forecast. Uh, currently, I'm just going out to June. My plan is to, to use a run rate to go out further. Um, we just, I just didn't, was not able to get it done in, in this, uh, this month's report. Um, I start out with just reminding everybody why, you know, we were, we were so ended the year last year in such a good place in regard to our line of credit balance or NNB, net negative balance. We got advances. I mean, with, when COVID hit, everybody was very concerned about hospitals. So the safety net care pool um, gave us 15.1 million, even though we owed them, you know, money. But that the 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 way that they did the true up there, we're going to end up having to have to pay it back. But we got that money in June. The HPAC, the county paid us early. Uh, they normally would have paid that in September. They also gave us some grant money, and then we got approval uh, or CMS approved the GME funding of 9.5 million. Uh, and all of that happened right to help us when, you know, we needed it, you know, desperately right there at the end of the year when the pandemic just started and, you know, our hospital was basically empty. So in the forecast, um, you know, right now this looks a lot better than what we put in the budget. 
Um, we still are not showing that we're going to make the NNB target, but we're very close. So I could say um, that probably just, uh, um, you know, some timing differences on uh, when we pay a vendor could basically get us to, to achieve the NNB goal for this year. Uh, but I've just left it uh, that, you know, we're going to be slightly over. Um, the next slide is that chart I was talking about. So the county staff asked me to, because there's such huge dollars flying around, if I could please um, give them a chart so that they can see when I expect these inflows and outflows. So I have done that here. Uh, I'll need to extend this when I extend the projection. Um, I made just one change this last month, and that was the AB 85 realignment money. We get that through an HPAC amendment that we are just now completing. We need to invoice the county. So I figure those funds will come in this month. So we moved them from December to February. That's the 41.3 million there, right about in the middle. Um, I wanna point out, you've got those three recoupments there, the 71.6, the 33, and the 40 million. Those all tie back to that other schedule because those are all from my cash flow. And then these are just other big ones that are in the normal course of business and when I, you know, when we expect to get them. Um, and then I wanted to point out, you know, why is it that our NNB still looks really good, but we've got this big, huge loss. So I have listed the bullets here as to what is happening. So, you know, we made one of the waiver payments, the 09 demand came in and we made that payment in September of 7 million. We've got this year-to-date EBITDA loss of 25.7. That does include the strike cost. So there's not an additional um, a hit there. The, um, and what's happening is our patient cash is stronger than we had expected. Our measure A is higher than projected. In fact, we are on track to at least make our budget at 117.7 million this year. We didn't think that was going to happen when we did the budget. Um, we also had COVID relief money of 11.7 million received uh, in the July, August timeframe. I know revenue recognition is different, but the cash came in in July and August. We didn't have any idea we were gonna have that funding. And then the real big item here that we can't forget about is the fact that we are not spending the capital budget. Um, we, the board approved 60.8 million in capital. That is for projects that were currently in play plus new projects. We've only spent 10.5 million halfway through the year. So you, when you net these things together, you see that we're, that's why our um, cash flow has not changed, the line of credit balance. Any questions on that? Yes, I do, Kim. This is Splend, Splendorio. Uh, focus on, on the CapEx. Um, <clears throat> it, was that a management decision not to spend? So there's two things going on. One, there's the shelter in place. People are at home. Uh, I think there's the, also the distractions of just what's going on with AHS today. And then there's uh, a second reason, and that is I did change the way that we, we do, we um, approve capital. And there, I know there's been some confusion. Uh, people aren't sure which forms they need to fill out. Uh, we do have a new policy, a new charter, but we've got new people and 
I think uh, some folks might have moved forward and haven't because they just weren't sure what form they needed to fill out. But what I have done to make sure that we don't, you know, miss something is uh, we have an emergency request and we have approved every one of those that's come through. And we'll, I need to come back and do a capital report um, to you and also as part of getting ready for next year's capital budget. What's very interesting to me is that we have a capital budget and most of the items that are coming through aren't even on that capital budget. There are other things. So I'm concerned about, you know, our process and um, we'll, we'll need to talk about that and um, bring that back to this group. Thank you. Yeah, I don't recall ever seeing a cap a capex budget. Maybe I mean, but there's a lot of stuff you throw at us. Um, but I, I think it's really a more of a question for James. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'll just make an observation here. I see, uh, you know, just an un, undesirable lack of spending in in technology, to productivity technology, and that concerns me. Um, I'm hoping that, and I understand this money demands are are all over the place, but <clears throat> you know, if you're going to write the ship, productivity has to increase based you typically on based on technology. Duly noted, Splend. Um, certainly, that I'm concerned about deferred maintenance and about uh, missed opportunities. If folks needed these things and they were identified in the budget, but we've not acted on it, I need to make sure that we're not missing the opportunities that you're referring to. So I will be following up. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm, I, I'm not calling anybody out. It's just a question that, you know, it's just, um, you know, it, it just in, in, the, in the place in which in which we, we, we work, we have to be more productive with and utilize, you know, our capital assets to the best that we can. Agree. And, and if we um, absolutely agree, especially on the tech ones, but if we could find out, if, if we could have uh, understand because I mean we have no luxuries in our capex. Everything is like urgent and immediate. So like what has been deferred would be like really helpful to know at the next meeting. Yeah, I I do think shelter in place had a lot does have a lot to do with it. People are working from home. I I I, I suspect that um, that has something to do with it, but. Uh, um, clearly, I, to me, I was just surprised by the fact that we had these urgents, we had these lists, we said, you know, these are, this is the capital budget. We actually, you know, had a line item detail of every item that needed to be done and they haven't come through. So. Yeah. If I, if I can only just make one observation, Kim is, I mean, I think most businesses, uh, did not or will not spend their CapEx budget, you know, but. But there were always opportunities, you know, to say, well, maybe we should implement this software system because it might be easier to do uh, from home than, or, or is it better in the workplace? I mean, I, those are the sort of discussions I've heard, you know, businesses t uh, have on, um, on, you know, maybe they don't need to expand to a new office, that sort of capital. But, but they, I have seen them do, especially when it comes to software and technology. I've seen, I've seen that discussion. And I'm just wondering, you know, if, if that's perhaps a place to to analyze is you know what could we could could have been implemented or could be implemented because i you know i i, I think we're going to continue on in this path for at least another six months i think that's a good point and it, it's a it's a great segue to the budget overview because that's uh that's that's uh one of those items on the list as our you know will 
do we need to make changes? So, so that is my report. I, like I said, I've included the appendixes here. These are the same. Oh, I wait, <laughs> I have to tell you one thing. I have great news here. <laughs> um, so we received $20 million on January 26, uh, which is for a safety net targeted distribution of the CARES Act. Um, you know, we didn't know we were gonna get this. Uh, I had expected maybe five to 6 million on the, on the guarantee payment of 2%. Um, and we did not get that, we got 40,000. But the 20 million was targeted and I, we did call and we were not able to get any specifics as to how they determined we were due that money. You know, obviously you can see our losses year to date. You know, we know that we need this money, um, uh, but th it was great news. So <laughs> I did want to share that, even though it's not in the financial statements, it'll be in next month's, we'll report it in January and it'll be in my next month's report. The other thing I want to add is on the FEMA claims. Um, uh, the Biden administration has now said that we will get 100% of valid claim retroactive to January of 2020. So that's more good news. We had thought before we'd just get 75% and we really weren't totally sure on whether, how it would uh, actually, what period of time it would represent. So more good news. Any any question? that the CARES Act money is not going to be anything they ask for repayment on, right? Well, there will be a true up, and um, I have engaged Moss Adams to help us. Um, I think uh, I have in previous finance committee meetings have said that I'm a little concerned because uh, when you look at our financial statements for FY20, we did quite well. A lot of the reason why we did well was settlements from previous years. So particularly for the county and behavioral health. And so if you're just looking at our financial statements and net revenue expenses there, you know, and believe me, the way that you were supposed to report initially would have uh, not reflected the true, true impact of COVID. So as part of the audit, uh, audited financial statements. Moss Adams did a great job of writing some footnotes as to what some of these settlements were. And I have engaged them to um, oversee our submissions. Uh, so, and they also have some relationships with um, folks that are at the table deciding how these, how the audit uh, will be done and what will be, how, what will be considered. So uh, hopefully we will be in a place where we will not be paying anything back. I don't expect that we should have to pay anything back based on our losses, but who knows? The, the, the rules have yet to be written, um, but I do know there will be an audit and um, Moss Adams will help us um, complete it. Any questions? And so these other, these have not changed. They're there just to give you a, an idea of all of the funding support, all the things that we've looked at and uh, our expenses year to date um, for non-patient care related expenses for COVID. That is my report. Thanks so much, Kim. That was a lively discussion and we invested more time than I anticipated on that, but I think it was well worth it. Well, can I ask one, can I ask one final question, Kim? Sure. 
Hey, kind of a big question. Do you expect an unqualified opinion from the audit? So our, uh, our actual financial statement audit um, was done for FY20, and we did receive an unqualified opinion, so we were fine, and there were um, no uh, internal control weaknesses noted or anything. It was a good audit. Um, but what, the, what CMS has said is that these, the CARES funds are, uh, in essence, a, um, a grant, which would then be needed to, which needs, which requires an audit. And so there will be a separate audit just for those CARES funding. And we're just waiting for the regulations to be done and the, find out what the submissions will be. And then there, there, our auditors will need to, as part of their audit of this organization, also give an opinion on that. Right, thank you. <clears throat> Any other questions? All right, so we are going to move on to item B2, which is our Chief Operating Officer report. Uh, is there any public comment in advance of this item? Hearing none, uh, you can take it away. So before trustees, before I, I turn it over to uh, to Richard to provide his uh, post-acute as we've been doing every month, you recall we provide you with an update on our operations and how this influences uh, the work that we're doing across all of our facilities and our business units. And so last month you heard from uh, acute care services and this month you're hearing from post-acute and so on and so forth. Next month will be ambulatory. Uh, before before we get into that though, I just wanted to uh, offer just uh, some additional information, some data points as I was listening to Kim's report and listening to some of the questions that were being you know uh, posed. Uh, I know that Trustee Fox uh, indicated and spoke, you know, spoke to those uh, old waivers and, and uh, the impact that that had on the net negative balance and, you know, that how that uh, influenced or, or affected our performance. And I would say that I would offer a different perspective here where, you know, those, those old waivers are for years 11 through 15, uh, where those additional payments or the overpayments occurred during 11 through 15. Uh, in 15, the net negative balance of the permanent agreement was renegotiated. And so what we've experienced over recent years were actually uh, largely due to uh, additional payments that were received under the AB 85 realignment funding. And so we received a large uh, quantity of dollars from, uh, you know, through the, through the health plan local initiative back in like 16 and 17, all of those which would not be reflected in that dashboard there. And so I would say that that along with operational improvements, in fact, is what allowed us to really improve our performance as an organization. And then over the recent years, we've been seeing that continue to creep up as expenses have continued to rise. And so I would share that and I would offer that as a different perspective there of what uh, we experienced and what we saw here through the organization. On, on the other point regarding capital, I would say that uh, you, you know understand that this year through the pandemic and some of the challenges that we've experienced uh, with being able to move things across the finish line, we have been able to, uh, uh, to procure a number of pieces of medical uh, equipment that are required for clinical care across all of our areas. And so those have processed and have moved along relatively quickly. Some of the big projects that we have that impact also and is a cash flow uh, issue as far as when the timing of these payments are made has to do with the large project we're doing at Alameda Hospital, which is the seismic compliant pro project for the kitchen. That's a $25 million project. 
that was part of our dollars that we had allocated and budgeted for this year. Equally, we have a $6 million roof that we're working on at Park Bridge that is underway. Again, takes time due to the work that's happening with OSHPOD, with uh, architects, with regulatory agencies that, you know, again, the timing of those payments and how we're looking at executing on some of those projects takes a little longer than what you would see just from purchasing a sonogram or a portable CT scanner. So there is movement happening and there is work being done for, uh, you know, the capital that was planned for this year, but it has been significantly impacted by the fact that regulatory agencies and some of the other uh, support that's necessary to carry out some of these construction efforts and some of these major facilities projects, you know, has slowed things down. So uh, I would I just offer that and I share that with you all. Uh, you know, there's this, I, I kind of sense the perception that things weren't being done. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So, uh, you know, happy to provide more detail, but that's the reality of what we're dealing with as it relates to the capital efforts uh, themselves. I, I just want to add one thing too. I mean, when you look at all of the things that have happened and, you know, since this pandemic started, I mean, setting up telehealth was huge. The having the joint commission here and, and making the improvements that we needed to do right away. I do have to agree with Luis and I hope I did not lead every, anyone astray in regard to my comments about the timing of capital and the fact that the ones that we funded weren't necessarily ones on the list. But I hope that I did not uh, may, uh, lead the trustees to believe that work was not being done because it is really quite amazing what has actually happened. And what, I mean, if you, I just look at telehealth as just the perfect exam, example. We're gonna talk about the COVID unit here but uh, the fact that we got that up and going, I think we had it up and going before any of our of our um, our other local uh, hospital systems. So uh, anyway, and then I, on the on the uh, net negative balance, I I just want to remind everybody that net position, which is different than the line of credit, and Trustee Fox did bring that up, and that is that. It's, it's deteriorated this year because of those big losses. But if you go back over several years, we've had the liabilities on the books and it did improve. So um, just to, just to you know, make sure everyone understands what, what the conversation was. Thank you, Kim, that, uh, that's helpful. Just wanted to make sure we had that context. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to Richard for his post-acute report. Excellent. Well, thank you all for having me this evening. It's uh, great to be back and to give you uh, a report on our post-acute operations. I trust everyone has read the report, uh, so I will just go over uh, some highlights um, and I'll jump right in. I, I do want to say that um, I'm incredibly proud and honored to work with the teams that uh, we have in our post-acute. It's been it's going to be a year that we've been dealing with COVID and um, on top of daily operations, we've had layers of new operational processes and new rules and regulations and new testing uh, rules and regulations. And so the teams um, have really risen to the occasion. Um, and so I, I'm proud to really um, share what this uh, team has done. So in terms of access, um, due to CMS and CDPH regulatory requirements, um, all SNFs uh, throughout the nations are struggling with meeting uh, census numbers that they normally would see with yellow zones for uh, quarantining and having to be there for 14 days before you can move them. It is creating some uh, census issues nationally. The one thing that we have done uh, that really has helped us is the opening of the Fairmont uh, CQU, the COVID quarantine unit. 
And we did that under the CMS waiver, which uh, is going to expire our March 1st. And so we're working closely with CMS to see if they have any plans of extending this. Um, because this has actually helped not only our community hospitals, our HS hospitals and SNFs, um, but it's helped us in terms of uh, regaining uh, census within our system. And so I have a snapshot here that we opened the CQU uh, in the last week of October where we had three yellow admissions, which is quarantine residents. And then in November, we had 22 and two red, December 28 and 16 red. And in January, we have 35 yellow and 20 red. So it just continues to grow. Um, it's demonstrated that there is a need in the community for this, for the hospitals to be able to decompress um, and, and not surge in the areas that uh, they may have had we not had this uh, resource for them to be able to discharge to. Um, we are looking at our admissions coming from within the system. We are on target. Um, one thing that we're looking at is our rehab uh, clinic, which due to a physician change, we haven't been running. And also with COVID, um, having uh, patients come in uh, has been another issue. But we do have a new physician who will be picking up that unit. Um, we submitted our restoration plan to the ROC, the Restoration Oversight Committee, on Monday. So we will wait for approval on that. And, and once we do have approval, we're looking to start that program back up within two weeks from approval. Uh, second, our outpatient rehab has um, not seen the numbers that we would normally see. And again, it's due to COVID. It's due to shelter-in-place orders. Uh, patients uh, not wanting to come to the hospitals at the moment or being able to come to the hospitals. And so those volumes have uh, largely, um, about 50% of it has gone away while we are in this COVID surge and COVID year. Um, however, they have been on tar or close to target in terms of charging post posted charges within two days. This is 97, we're at 98 slight update, but they've been working very hard on making sure that we're seeing the patients in the acute um, where we can and in the ARU. In terms of quality, uh, our ARU just had a three-year car for accreditation resurvey in December. It went incredibly well. We're waiting for the uh, final uh, verdict, but um, the exit was incredibly um, strong um, during the exit, and it's not official at the moment. Um, but they had a 0.5 um, recommendation, that was it. And so uh, we're anticipating a very favorable um, accreditation uh, for that. And so we're hoping to hear within the next few weeks uh, the official word from CARF. Well, congratulations, that's a great result. Yeah, we, we had the first CARF survey three years ago and we had the highest accreditation, which is three years. And so we, we are here at the three-year mark again. So we're hoping for a similar result, but thank you. Um, for the ARU, the discharges from rehab to SNF are below budget, which is great, which means we're discharging uh, patients back home where they want to be. Um, our labor dollars are off um, for December and year-to-date. This is largely due to slightly um, dips in census as well as overtime and non-productive hours, um, being able to align with census and some MOU language where therapists um, are not um, able to be... Um, to, to align with what census is. And so those are things that we're looking at. Um, a length of stay also is matching with case mix index. And so average length of stay is 14 days for an ARU. Uh, you can see we're doing slightly better than that, even with a, a pretty strong case mix index. 
What 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 average census do we run in that rehab unit? So we run full to 28. Um, lately, we've been around 23 during December, so we're off about two patients a day, but we run pretty full. Um, in December, largely, you know, you have to be well enough to have three hours of therapy a day. And so um, post-COVID might not have the strength to do that at the moment. And so we did see um, a slight dip in the census, but we do run pretty full. Uh, in terms of the quality quality measures for our SNFs and subacute units, um, in December, our Alameda SNFs were at five stars. They have been five stars for going on three and a half years straight, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and they had three stars in quality measures. And so the team is very proactive. We look at our MDSs and we look at what's flagging on our quality measures. There's over 33 measures that we look at. Um, and so they focused on two measures, ADL decline and UTIs. And in January, you can see uh, the Alameda sites are at an overall five-star rating as well as an overall quality measure. So these are the highest scores that a building can get. Um, we also just, when you see our dashboard, we have targeted for five in both overall and quality measures. So our buildings know that uh, we strive for excellence and uh, we don't want to be average. Uh, and so we strive for the, the top that we can. And, and this, these three buildings to be five stars means all three buildings must run equally at level of care and caliber of outcomes. Also in December, our Fairmont SNF uh, was rated at an overall three stars with four stars in quality, and they focused on antipsychotic gradual dose reduction and pressure ulcers. And they equally in uh, January have received an overall uh, five-star quality rating as well as five-star in quality measures. So these teams are working incredibly hard. And so this is tough to do in just normal operations. Um, but layered with everything that we've gone through this last year is just remarkable of all of these teams. So just I want to put a, a shout out for a kudos to each and every one of them. Um, some of my numbers are going to change here um, a little bit. Uh, we have been focusing on vaccinations. And so uh, as of today, 80% of our SNF residents have received their first dose. Uh, and as of five o'clock today, uh, uh, our second Walgreens clinic at Fairmont, we're at 56% of, of residents receiving their second dose. Um, so pretty strong numbers. And so we have uh, residents who still um, might be a little leery about the, the vaccine. And so we're working to make sure that they understand the risk and benefits or families um, so that we can ensure that we're providing access of vaccination to everyone and that we're helping families and residents understand the benefits of it. Um, we did have a, an outbreak. Sure, sure. Excuse me for interrupting. Did I hear you say that Walgreens is administering the, the vaccinations instead of our staff? Right, so uh, there is a national vaccination strategy with skilled nursing facilities and on November 6th, all SNFs uh, who wanted to participate in this national vaccination had to sign up with either CVS or Walgreens. All of our buildings signed up uh, for this because we knew that we wanted to have every advantage of vaccination, vaccinating our um, residents and staff um, before we had any doses um, provided to us. And so all of our SNFs uh, chose to work with Walgreens and then Walgreens set up three clinics a clinic for initial dose, 
the second clinic is for second dose plus initial dose for those that have changed their minds or any new admits. And then the third clinic will be for a final national program that we joined in order to make sure that we were uh, giving our residents and staff every opportunity to receive a vaccination. Thank you for brokering that partnership, Richard, because that then allows our, uh, you know, AHS uh, vaccine to be used again towards like the RRR um, and, and take some of that load off. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to do this. We work closely with uh, Luis and um, other and Tenbeer, and we understood that if we were able to uh, collaborate with Walgreens um, to do this, that would also allow us um, more vaccine within the system to be utilized for our staff, our physicians, our patients within the acute settings. And so really brokering um, opportunities to, to have access, right? I'll move on. We did have an outbreak at Park Ridge. I will say that, um, you know, all of our buildings for 10 months only had four positive patients, which was remarkable. But in December and January, there were 112 buildings in our county that had outbreaks, 34 buildings. Um, it did hit Park Ridge, um, but I'm, I'm happy to say um, that uh, the outbreak has uh, closed as of 128. There are no positive residents at Park Ridge at this moment. Uh, CDPH came last week to survey Park Ridge as well as our other sites for their mitigation plans and infection control processes as it relates to outbreaks and those surveys resulted in no findings. And so I share that because it's important to understand that we have best practices in our sites. Um, and even with the best practices in place with a virus that you can't see and people don't feel symptoms, it's incredibly difficult to keep out. Um, our buildings did remarkably well and Park Ridge did great um, in, in moving through that. And so we're back to having zero patients that are positive at Park Ridge. In terms of sustainability, um, you know, in terms of patient days and expense, it is over, but it's largely due to census being slightly below budget again over time, non-productive hours and staff unable to align with census. I will also say with um, the SNFs, and the subacute units testing staff weekly, we are identifying positives within our, uh, our, our staff, right? And so as the surge happened, as was predicted nationally and, and from the state and from the county after Thanksgiving, we had a large number of staff that were out um, with uh, COVID. And so as the staff are out, our overtime went up. Um, and so that's one of the reasons overtime is higher than it normally would be um, in December. In terms of experience, um, our ARU normally does great. Um, they were hit, they, the last survey, they were at 71% on a budget of 84.5 for uh, patient satisfaction. This last survey was largely around food um, and um, the likes and quality of food. And food is always a tough one because some folks like their spices, some like their salt, and they might be on a new added salt diet. And so that is a tough one, but we are working with our FNS teams just to make sure that we're collaborating with the units to make sure that we're providing the best product possible. We normally do surveys in our SNF and subacutes uh, twice a year. Um, we were going to do one uh, in December, but due to the COVID outbreaks and due to the additional work that's been happening in the SNF settings, we have moved that to March. Uh, so that will occur, we will do resident and family satisfaction surveys in March. 
In terms of labor, uh, we are over budget, but the majority of that is because of the Fairmont uh, COVID CQU, right? This was not a budgeted unit, but we knew it would help our hospitals from surging as well as uh, help the community sniffs. And so that's the largest piece in terms of labor dollars as well as um, COVID leave. Um, and so we, we do focus on this closely, but our gross charges do reflect a positive variance from month to date and year to date. So even though our expense is up, we are seeing the benefits of having uh, the COVID unit. Again, over time, I talked about it, it is higher in December because of the uh, employees that we were seeing that were turning up positive and the outbreak. We, we had 48 employees who had COVID at Park Ridge alone. Um, and the subacute units is a smaller unit, but they also had large numbers of staff that were community acquired. And so as those employees were out on quarantine or if they were positive, um, that did uh, jump the overtime. Our nurse leaders also helped manage that. It was a team effort, but we are continuing to monitor that. We are seeing that that's dropping now that um, employees are coming back. Uh, and then revenue, as I had mentioned, gross charges, we're uh, about 3 million positive variants for the month and 18.5 million for year to date. Uh, and overall expense for December was 513 over and again, largely due to the CQU. Lastly, uh, I wanted to add, and I know I've mentioned this before, but it's nice to see it in a certificate is um, the Alameda hospital sites were uh, in October uh, recognized the second year in a row for being top in the state of California. We are ranked seventh in the state and ranked in the top 400 across 20 states. And, and the key piece of this that I think is incredible is that this does take into account the COVID-19 response. And so it's not only the quality measures and health inspections and indicators, but really looking at recommendations from experts as well as COVID-19 response. So this is data that we're submitting to CMS, CDPH, public health. They have access to that data, data because it's public information. Um, but really, you know, remarkable work from the teams. I will make a small caveat that I believe our Fairmont building would have been recognized as well. However, this, this is for buildings that are 150 beds and larger. And so you will see here we are number seven at 181 beds. So that, that sums up my report. Are there any questions I'd be happy to answer? Thanks to you and your team, Richard. It's just remarkable. Thank you. Thank you for that report. Well done on the top in the nation. Um, next, we're going to move on to uh, information discussion section C. C1 is fiscal year 2022 budget calendar and process, and our CFO will lead this discussion. If I can get the presentation up here. Everybody see it? Okay, so uh, I want to provide a status report on the decisions made to date by the Budget Oversight Committee um the decisions and also the the calendar i want to gain consensus on um, budget goals and guiding principles i'd like feedback from this group 
And also I want to gain consensus on identifying key stakeholders that need to be involved in this process. Um, the budget process is kind of laid out here. Uh, in the December, January timeframe, uh, we, we develop overall assumptions and we build a preliminary budget. In February and March, we review it with all the management team and others. Uh, in April, May, we're finalizing it, fine tuning it, and then coming for approval and then loading uh, for a July uh, comparison for the first month of the next fiscal year. I want to point out there that under uh, the number one there, December, January, we have draft guiding principles and budget goals. And uh, what historically we've done is we've started with um, building those guidelines and goals first so that as we go through this process, it helps us make decisions and it keeps us all aligned with uh, where we're trying to go in the process. This next one is, you know, you can look at, it's, it's just the detail of the major steps involved with completing the budget. So you kind of have an idea of the, what it takes to, to get all this done. Um, so far, uh, the budget oversight committee has uh, given guidance as follows. Um, we are planning to use or continue with a run rate approach to budgeting. Um, what that means is we uh, look at history and we um, uh, don't make any major changes. Uh, there's a lot of benefits in doing this um, with the exception of COVID, right? Um, COVID was, you know, definitely changed many of the, of our volumes and staffing with leaves of absence and everything. So we want to go backwards to a run rate pre-COVID. And so that is what the budget oversight committee has agreed to do. Um, by doing this, uh, we can use historical revenue and costs that reduces risks of errors. Um, if we are going to make changes to a program, we can uh, do it on top of the baseline budget. And in doing that, we can make sure it's vetted and we can monitor and track it. And just as a reminder, uh, a budget is short term. It's not a strategic plan that spans many years. You know, we can only do so many things in a 12 month period. So um, investing a lot in, 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 a, in a long range financial plan when you're budgeting is, can be a, a, a mistake. So just kind of a caution there from the CFO. Um, the Budget Oversight Committee has determined that the volumes, and I'm missing the word volume in that second to last bullet, are gonna be based on the FY21 budget. And just to remind everyone, those were based on historical run rates. We made some tweaks based on things we knew that were going on, doctors starting, doctors leaving, that sort of thing. But pretty much it's based on our history. And the labor standards were the lower of budget uh, or actual. And that's the starting point, and that's pre-COVID, because obviously you know our census dropped uh, tremend dramatically, and we wanted to try to go back to, this is how we could do it before with these volumes, we should be able to do it again. We do plan to have a labor pool so that folks understand that there is the ability to add a position if it's needed and it can be done 
through this pool and not built into the base budget. So those are the, the what we've, what's happened so far, and that's the work that's being done. Um, next, I wanted to talk about uh, budget goals and guiding principles. And I think to start the conversation, it would be best to go to last year's. So that's what this slide is. Um, so last year, what we said is we were gonna focus on stabilization and we had just implemented EPIC. Um, we didn't uh, wanna put in any new programs or and make any material changes to the budget. Uh, IOP was one program that was discussed. Uh, however, even the Im financial impact of any decision was not built into until like the last month of the fiscal year. So it really didn't have any financial impact to the budget. So status quo. And then um, in regard to sustainability, what we said is we wanted to cover our operating costs and contribute to capital, but we had no intention of trying to pay for prior year recruitments. Um, we knew that we were gonna have a negative cash flow, which meant our NNB would go up. In regard to uh, inclusive, inclusive and exclusive, <laughs> well, that's a good word to work, and I'll just say accountability. We wanted to make sure that we covered all areas of Alameda Health System. Uh, we did a survey and folks felt like we didn't include enough people and we didn't have the ability to drive the accountability and get commitment for budget. So last year we added a lot of checkpoints with AHS leadership. Uh, we wanted it balanced. So we wanted to ensure there were resources for things that needed to happen. So we did make investments. We made investments in regulatory and EVS. Uh, we knew that we needed to do that. We knew the joint uh, commission survey was coming, um, but the idea was that we wanted to sustain the, the quality or improve it. And so in certain areas, we did make investments. In regard, in regard to continuous improvement, we did build in a lot of incremental performance improvements. So we used our GPO contracts, we used benchmarking, we uh, have a whole um, uh, list of um, strategic initiatives that we call them, or operational improvement initiatives is what I call them. And I will be bringing those back to you next month as an update on how we're doing on achieving those um, items. So this was the framework we did the budget for last time. So, so far where we're at this time is we don't have a, a, a EBITDA target or a cash flow target yet. Um, typically we would like to go to our long range financial plan to get a target. Um, we had our last year is FY22 uh, and it said we would have a 5.7% EBITDA margin. Um, I'm not sure that that's realistic. It's very dated and the initiatives to get there are, are not fully vetted out and we're not updated in the last recent year or two. For FY21, we set a target of 3%. We only achieved 2.3%. And just to remind everybody, that was assuming no COLA for unrepresented or any open union contracts. And we still only got to 2.3. 
We've got the issue of the governance model and um, our line of credit with the county and the NNB target. The permanent agreement says that we shall be below 115 million at June 30, 2022. So that's 5 million less than this year. We uh, have prioritization um, for closing union agreements. That is gonna put a burden on the financial statement. Um, yes, we're doing some labor standard benchmarking and trying to improve our labor standards, but the, um, the impact of this at this point is unknown, but it looks like it will have a big negative impact. We also need to have a capital budget and um, that's difficult to do without prioritization from uh, the benefit of a long-range financial plan. Uh, there may be other priorities and initiatives that need to be considered. So um, this group would, would be great to have you weigh in on that. And um, also we need to identify and evaluate the internal and external stakeholders needed uh, to ensure we do have accountability and a successful budget process. So, you know, there is the AHS leadership team. There's also all of you and the board of trustees. You know, how involved are you? Do you all want to be in this process? Do we want to involve the board of supervisors, the county staff? Granted, you, know, you may make that decision based on the decision on the NNB and um, our evident margin. The East Bay Medical Group, um, uh, we had Alameda Health Partners last year, which was just a subset. Now we have a much bigger physician group. How involved do they need to be? We've got the Alameda District Board, and then there's other you know, community stakeholders. So I kind of just threw out a list. Um, this, this is mostly coming from the Budget Oversight Committee. And I was hoping we could have a little discussion about that, this to give us, um, you know, help us develop a roadmap so we can make decisions as we push through this budget process. Um, in regard to additional operational adjustments, uh, there were some things that the Budget Oversight Committee uh, has already considered. There's the effect, effect of the 340B legislative impacts. The, uh, there's a GI expansion happening. Uh, obviously, there's the COVID issue. We, you know, probably towards the end of the budget, we'll have to make a decision if there needs to be a contingency fund, if we're still going to be doing testing or you know, um, vaccines, who knows? Uh, there were some special um, thoughts about our capital, meaning uh, financial infrastructure and also IT security. We need to figure out what we're gonna do with telehealth. Are we gonna be able to get reimbursed in the future? Should we just go back to budgeting for in-person visits? And then are there other things that the Finance Committee wants us to consider, um, program changes, um, service changes, other investments, other items? So I kind of just dumped a lot there on you, um, but I was hoping we could have a little bit of a discussion about this and next steps so that we can have a successful um, budget process. Well. I would, I would say just as, as a very broad uh, statement of, of guidance, perhaps I'd throw out there that I think we'd all like to see operational and financial improvement. But I also think given where we are with a 
almost completely new senior management team, a new board, uh, and the the need uh, to establish and maintain trust among all of these players and the county. One thing that's be very important is that this this be a budget that we all think we have a fairly high confidence level that we can achieve. Uh, uh, if we stretch ourselves too thin, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, it shouldn't be a stretch in terms of effort. We're going to all need to stretch in terms of effort. But if we stretch ourselves too thin in terms of our volume revenue and EBITDA, and we don't make the budget, and we're and we're from early in the year, we're way we're well behind. Then the, we're not going to do ourselves any good in terms of establishing trust among each other and with the county. And I think it would with an, with a new board and a new leadership team, uh, it would be a, a really good thing for the management team to kind of keep its promise to itself and and make the budget targets by and large in the first year that all, we're all together. How do you feel about a evident target or um, um, setting any guidance for trying to achieve the 115 million on the line of credit? Um, obviously, with the recoupments, that would be if those come due and we have to pay them, that would be you know likely impossible. But from operations, uh, is that a priority of the finance committee? Uh, is is the EBITDA margin a priority? I speaking for myself. This is James Jackson's second week. Um, he completed his first week. So I would think that we would have to have our leader um, get a get an, uh, get a sense of what's feasible because uh, putting it there and having something that's absolutely um, we have to stretch, we have to do, and we have to be realistic as well. So um, I think these next few weeks will be really key and I hope he has all of the support to come up um, and understand the different um, pushes and pulls that we have. Like, what should be the EBITDA percentage? We, I mean, we we have to approve a balanced budget, but what will be the EBITDA percentage is something that I guess the finance committee. And that's it. That's a, a, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. What is a balanced budget? So a balanced budget could mean you are able to um, generate enough revenue to pay your expenses. Um, a balanced budget could mean that you have to be able to generate enough cash flow to pay for all of your capital and all of your liabilities. Uh, and uh, I, I know that that word is in our permanent agreement, but it doesn't define what that means. Exactly. You're right. Kim, I have some comments or you want observations or actually questions. Um, 
who is the over, budget oversight committee? Who is it? People on that on the on the board of trustees? Other people? Who is it? Yes, I'm. I'm sorry. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, it is our uh, CEO, our COO, our CMO. Um, I'm missing anybody. I don't think we currently have anybody from ambulatory. I, I think that is our committee for this year. Okay, so part of the, part of the executive team, portions yeah. of the Zig. Okay, Chief HR, Chief HR, uh, Kim. Oh, thank you. I forgot the Chief of HR. And of course, Chief. Oh, yeah. Um, and and I want to understand about you know you can go back a few slides to the impact of COVID. Are you saying that for for the budget for twenty one twenty two that there is not going to be a consideration of COVID impacts? Right. So what we're saying is that by June of this year, the the thought is that m many things might be more normal. We might have more elective procedures. Our ED volumes will, will likely be restored. Normally in the summer months is the low is the slower period anyway. And then uh, so our, our volumes would get back to normal. We do recognize that there may be some changes that need to be made. Like so there might need to be uh, you know a COVID fund if especially if we're having to have to, you know, provide testing and vaccines and all that sort of stuff. And we would layer that on in the end when we are closer to the beginning of the year and we know more about what the the impact of COVID might be. Okay, so you're asking for feedback and I'm sorry, I, I'll do it politely. I think that's wrong. That, that was impolite, but I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of kidding. I think that's wrong. I think it, COVID impact will last more than past June. No, I don't even know a business that doesn't think that it is going to be impacting it. Um, maybe I should use wrong the term, not business enterprise, that doesn't think they're going to be impacted by COVID for years. I, just, I, I don't talk to anybody who even says that, would say that they're going to be unaffected. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's a negative. I mean, their business has been positively impacted by it. But to say that it's not, I just I'm not, I don't agree. I mean, that's, but that's my observation. Well, I think where maybe where the our disconnect here is is we have to figure out what our volumes and what our labor standards would be. Which, what we're saying is that if we were to build in the labor standard right now with COVID, that would distort everything. So the idea is that we handle COVID outside the the baseline budget. So when, as we um, as we complete the preliminary or the baseline budget then we can say, okay, do we need to layer on a change for COVID? And we would do that towards the end. But when we have all of our managers in the organization reviewing and looking at their budgets, we don't want them to build in the impact of COVID because I'll never know how much they built in. So this way, if we go back to historicals, then we can make a decision on what we want to layer on top. Okay, I, I guess I still disagree. I understand the clarification, but I mean, they should explain, you know, why they think it's different, you know, or, or if they want to do a, a with and without, that's fine. But, but still, it, 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 it there's going to be impact. I, that's, I just, again, I disagree. There's going to be impact. And, and I think it's wrong not to, not to understand that it will be, um, anyway, I, I said my piece on that. Um, and, and, and I, and this is from my earlier observation about, 
investment, the capex investment in in productivity. I mean, I, I you know that's that's where I think that that um, um, there should be some emphasis. But that's you know I mean I, that that I just think that that's a place where if you can increase productivity, you will see returns, not necessarily immediately, but you'll see. I mean, and that's why I interpret investment in Epic, right? I mean, you, you, I, I've only been here a few, you know, a couple of months, but I've heard that it has, there's been a return on investment through, uh, through the, through the implementation of Epic. And I, you know, and, and it's gotta be other ways where the system can utilize other uh, capital expenditures to a greater, get a, get a greater return. Anyway, those are my observations. Can I say something uh, related to this, uh, Trustee Slendorio? I think, uh, I mean, in the literature right now, everybody is talking that the world is going to change post-COVID. You know, even after we get the vaccine right, it's going to take time, and it's never going to be the same as before. Uh, there's going to be an increase in the telehealth platform. There's going to be uh, other platforms that are going to change. We already are seeing a decrease in our ED volume that is persistent despite, you know, uh, opening up. So there is going to be a great deal of change. But I think what Kim is trying to say is that we really need to have a baseline to formulate a, a budget from and I totally agree. I mean, we might see an increase in volume in some area, decrease in others, how we are going to be reimbursed for telehealth. All of this remains in the unknown. Well, think, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I'm not speaking for um, Splen, but I agree too that we can have a baseline and we can have a scenario for COVID. Exactly. Uh, exactly, uh, Trustee Banerjee. This is what uh, I think uh, other people are looking is to have different scenarios, different scenarios, bad scenarios, worse scenarios, good scenarios. So uh, the thing is that uh, we need to close a budget for the whole year. And I don't know how we can really uh, model and evaluate different scenarios. Uh. Uh, other trustees, and I know Trustee Bouquet is with us in an ex officio status. I would like to hear from our CEO um, because it is under his purview. He sits on the Budget Oversight Committee, and uh, I'm curious to know what you have to say. Thank you. I would be happy to weigh in. I am. Um, I think that Trustee Splendario, mm -hmm. your your point is very well taken about the COVID impact. I think we need to try to create the multiple scenarios. We need to anticipate the COVID impact um, being with us for an extended period of time. But I think that um, Kim is suggesting that we have to use the the volume projections from pre-COVID as, as a starting point, because at some point we will start ramping back up. We just don't know the how quickly that will happen. And so multiple scenarios will give us the the range of options, if you will. And I think that um, Ghassan was kind of alluding to that. Um, how, how we do that, I think, is kind of TBD. And the Budget Planning Committee met today, and we, we talked about this to some extent. And so um, what Kim was going to come tonight was to really give you a high-level you know, estimate of, of our thinking and really take the feedback that we received from you as trustees as guiding principles. But we wanted to make sure that you understood 
the the directional thinking of the budget oversight committee. Um, we will. This is a framework, and then we will have to do the work of really hanging the pieces, um, the specifics on it going forward. But we needed to hear from you. Are we even moving in the right direction? And you've given us some good feedback, and this is what we will take back to the Budget Oversight Committee and continue this process. And Splend, I also, um, I did want you to know, and I was really grateful for Luis weighing in about the capital process because I was concerned too about such a significant um, underspend from a capital perspective, but obviously money has to come in in order for money to go out. But Luis kind of qualified it and indicated that some of the capital money is in fact, um, it's committed. It just hasn't actually been spent yet is the, what I, what I heard of it. And so we'll have a better sense of the capital, but what I will do is follow up with Kim and with Mark Amy to make sure that, you know, one, there was the kind of prioritization of the capital spend that we're comfortable with. And we will come back to this group and talk about that. Um, but you know, your point about the, the revenue capture systems that we should be focusing on is not lost on me and I will be focusing on that. Thank you. Thank you both of you. Thank you. Back to the question of the definition of uh, a break-even budget. And I would say that I, I don't think a break-even budget is break-even EBITDA. I would say a break-even budget is break-even bottom line net income net of all expenses, including depreciation, which I don't think is a really big expense in our case because most of the assets are on the books of the county. But I, I think I know in, in reading the grand jury report and possibly also in the Whipfly report, uh, the fact that budgets in past years have been submitted that did not include all of the expenses all the way down to the bottom line. Uh, that's something that sowed some mistrust at the county level uh, and because they felt that they were, that the hospital had, a, uh, the organization had a break-even commitment and it really didn't have a break-even commitment. One thing that I think we might do though is, is say that uh, on, a, on a pro forma basis, we may have a break-even bottom line and pro forma meaning without considering uh, settlements and entries that relate to prior years, because at least then, if we could do that, we would be showing that we are oper that the current true the true the current year's true operations, only including current year revenue and expenses, are break even, and I think that is possibly an acceptable definition of break even for our purpose. We would still have to disclose what we think the. Uh, supplemental and out-of-year settlements are going to be because we don't want to be uh, ha we we don't want to have a big surprise when we need tens of millions of dollars to settle this these things. But if we have a clear understanding that that those are not part of the you know the current year's pro forma budget, we might get away with that. I think though we have to be honest and not. Uh, you know, and we, sh and we need to shoot for an improvement in operating profit margin and EBITDA margin. But if we don't think it's possible to get there, either because of COVID or other reasons, low, uh, reducing volume, you know, like the volume is dropping. Um, some of the patient satisfaction scores are below where we'd like them to be. Uh, we shouldn't present a budget that we think is not makeable. 
And if we don't think it's realistic to stay within the NNB uh, that's out, that's set out for us in the permanent agreement, I think we ought to transmit that rather than surprise people at the county level when when we need cash that they weren't expecting us to need. I greatly appreciate the wisdom of the members of this committee. Um, I'd like to ask if we have any kind of timeline on long range financial planning or strategic planning that was mentioned and if that is going to be something taken into consideration before the completion of this budget process. If I may, this is, this is James. So um, I had a conversation with um, my predecessor about the strategic plan. And as I understand it, there was a strategic, the last strategic plan essentially went through this year, um, through 2020 slash 21, and it was done. So the process was started last year to create a new strategic plan and COVID hit. And essentially the strategic planning process stopped. There are others on the on this call who were present and who may be able to speak more specifically, but that was my understanding from Dovecchio. Um, I've talked to Kim about the fact that it really is uh, impossible to do long range financial planning without a strategic plan. And so we've talked about needing to do the strategic planning work, but we're starting from the end of the last strategic plan and there's been no work of consequence on the new strategic plan that I've seen. And so, we understand that we have to build a strategic plan for the next three to five years, but that work is to be done. It has, it is not done now. Uh, so the, uh, the, uh, James, just, just as an FYI, the, the long range plan went through 22 and it had a 5.7, but it has not been updated for years. So, um, it's and and the details not there and how I mean there's a cash flow but that's all there is that shows the 5.7 but it's got probably the biggest driver of it is improvement in revenue cycle but we implemented epic according I mean that the, there's like a two-year lag for that to happen I think we're seeing a pickup now but other than that there's really no other rationale for that kind of a jump to 5.7 and I did include the long range financial plan in your orientation materials. So you all have, but I don't know how valuable it is because it really isn't, it's, it hasn't been updated and things have changed. I mean, it, it's probably hasn't been updated in over three years. Uh, so just to follow up, does that mean that there's a timeline for strategic planning? Or does that mean that we'll try to get through this process and then try to narrow in on that along yeah, with the long range financial plan? Well, I don't think we have time to do a long range financial plan before budget. Uh, so normally you have a long range financial plan first and then that drives your next year's budget and then you might tweak it or update it and then that'll drive your next year's budget. But um, in this case, I, I don't I don't have any confidence in, in what I have, so. Okay. Um, 
Trustee Bouquet, do you want to add anything? Yeah, great conversation. You know, I have comments sort of across. I'm trying to be a listener tonight. Um, to Trustee Splendario, I would agree with, with the concepts here, which are, uh, I think, planning, scenario planning is what, what we should be doing. And I, I would probably favor uh, if we have the bandwidth and I, we have to question why is this the investment we need to make on planning? And I think we do about COVID. I agree with the concept that COVID, it's impossible to not have an impact on how we do and how we build that into the process. Fully, fully agreeing that, 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 you know, setting it based without COVID allows us to benchmark, but I think we just have to plan because if we don't, I think it just allows us to get punched in the face. Um, to Trustee Fox, I, I, I agree with all his considerations uh, on this. And, you know, we have, a, we have bylaws which require us to, quote, submit a balanced budget, but we, we have to be realistic in our expectations and not just make it a math exercise uh, about what, what, what we are doing. With regard to EBITDA planning, um, you know, I once heard it said that uh, any EBITDA less than 3% in your organization is self-liquidating. And, you know, we, I, th I think we, uh, I would defer to, you know, Trustee Fox and Trustee Esteen and our CFO on what the right EBITDA target is. I don't know. Uh, and I know we're compelled by our bylaws to get this balanced budget. And this is an honest discussion we need to have with all our stakeholders. Um, with regard to strategic planning, um, the strategic planning, the, 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 the financial planning is, should be born out of strategic planning, but right now we're in a, Kind of a fight for our lives kind of situation so i i totally get that it's difficult to do that um i do want to remind us that we are still developing an april um retreat agenda and i i think you can't not have uh finance be a a centerpiece of of that and so i would work with trustees esteen our ceo and our cfo Towards, towards agendizing that as a, as a big chunk of the day um, going towards that. So and those are just some of my initial thoughts, Chair Esteen. Thank you for those. Um, I do wanna speak to uh, the operational adjustments, adjustments that were discussed, like uh, especially as it relates to capital expenditures. Um, right now it lists something about interventional GI expansion. Um, and I think that that is kind of tip of the iceberg. Um, and I wonder what other operational expansions might occur that also would be revenue generating. Um, you know, we started this meeting with a, a public comment about mental health care, about IOP, and mental health care in this county is incredibly important to provide. Um, in other counties the, in the state, there have been deep uh, investments and commitments made by taxpayers in Sonoma County in November 2020, the voters agreed for a $25 million investment in mental health expansion through tax revenue. Uh, in November 2019, the voters of San Francisco agreed to a $100 million investment in mental health care expansion, also with tax revenue. Um, and I think that as we figure out how to best reach as many uh, behavioral health clients in the county, we have to imagine that there's an appetite for this. It's not just in San Francisco or in Sonoma that these needs are real and that they are regional 
and really statewide and national, national, especially as we're dealing with COVID. Um, but I want us to seriously consider what it looks like um, to provide behavioral health care in this county and invest in it in a similar way that we do for medical care. And Measure A was revolutionary and we rely on it heavily. Um, I think that there's some room for negotiation with the county on how to go about providing behavioral care to uh, severe and persistently mentally ill clients, as well as our mild to moderate clients. Um, so I'd like to imagine that uh, as we talk about operational adjustments and uh, strategic initiatives. Um, I do think that in the stakeholder section that we uh, should imagine community stakeholders include our patients and those who we provide care to. Um, and whatever that process looks like to invite their input, I think could be very meaningful uh, so that they can also speak. Um, of course, labor is always a consideration. They want, you know, 75% of our budget pays labor costs. Um, but I think that makes them a key stakeholder. Especially nursing. Mm -hmm. I think that I don't disagree with that. And, I, and I, I'm sure that there will be some performa that we do for behavioral health. But I do want to caution that, you know, this is a budget which is short term and not a long range financial plan. And I think um, many of the things that you just brought up, like the, the getting additional support and stakeholders and maybe additional tax, all those things um, probably probably not going to fit in the short term for a budget. But I do think they're uh, great for the long-range uh, financial planning that needs to happen. Um, I think we also, we've talked about it several times tonight, need to consider the net negative balance as it relates to governance, the permanent agreement, and the restructuring of how we operate. Um, because a, a net negative balance, you know, our operating line of cash credit um, that consistently disappears leaves us with a need to consistently decrease services or decrease our expenses when uh, everything else in the world gets more expensive on an annual basis. We know about CPI, we know about cost of living adjustments, and we know about inflation. Why is our operating budget decreasing year after year? Well, at the same time, we have um, all these sweeps taking away our funds from supplements, which is 40% of our budget. You know, it's like we have this, we're fighting an uphill battle unnecessarily. And I, I think it's not fair for the county um, to lean on AHS in this way. You know, we are a branch of the county to provide medical care and behavioral health care to county residents with a budget that is constantly decreasing. We have to take that on. Any more thoughts or comments from anyone? I've got, I've brought it down a list here. It, it's James and I, I will just say, I'm, I'm grateful to this board. I feel like this is a, it's a hard conversation, but it's a conversation that has to happen. And what you've just said, trustee Esteen, really 
is the bottom line. We, we have an obligation to the residents of this county and we've got to do this work and, you know, figure this out. And so um, I think we're all committed to doing that, but I appreciate you crystallizing the, the charge ahead of us. Thank you very much. We're all in this together, right? The same mission. Thank you for that report, Kim. I think we are ready to move on to our uh, next agenda item, C2, the revenue cycle update. Um, and I'm excited to hear this first presentation uh, from Teresa Manifesto. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, let me get set up here and share my screen. Hang on. Okay, can you see my screen? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'll be presenting our revenue cycle metrics um, and we'll start with um, our hospital billing days and accounts receivable. And I did this graph um, and showing it based on um, the last 60 days. So in the last 60 days, um, the lowest we were with our days is about 68.9. The highest was 75. Most recently when I ran this report just at the um, end of um, January was 71.8. Um, we do have some things that we're working on and impacting our AR days. For one, um, the decrease here in December our cash in December was $11.7 million higher than in November. So we had a nice decrease there at the end of December. And um, we currently have some bill holds in place that are increasing our days. So I'll explain those as we go through the next couple slides. But some of the things we're working on to continue to work hard to reduce our days is um, denial prevention, number one. Um, we're working really hard with the integrated work group with key stakeholders throughout the organization to determine root cause of our denials. We have action plans around those and we're acting and reporting on those action plans. Um, we continue with decreasing our candidate for billing claim hold. Candidate for billing means that um, there's accounts that are ready to be billed, but there's an error and that error has to be cleared before that claim can go out. And I have more information on my next slide. Um, we had some um, accounts that, um, because we didn't automate our process in Epic to get accounts to bad debt, it was manual and things got backed up in November. So that automated process is now in place and was in place since the end of November. So we're getting our accounts to bad debt more timely now. And as phase two, we are um, still working through the remaining self-pay AR to further refine the automated process. So one thing I'll talk about on my next slide is um, 340B claim holds and what that means and how that's affecting our days. And right now the 340B claim holds um, is affecting our days. And we feel that with the dollar amount that we're holding right now, where claims are not being billed, um, our AR days would be around 65. Wow. 
And right here is how we compare to other EPIC organizations. So just keep in mind that we've been on EPIC for one year now. So now we're being compared to the organizations that are more matured EPIC users and not so much the, um, the new installs now. So it's obvious here we have our, our work cut out for us. Um, we are, you know, a little behind in what the others have um, been refining since they've been on EPIC, but we're working very hard to catch up and to um, be compared more to the medium or top performer. And we know we have a ways to go. I just, I just want to add uh, the, we were comparing to um, other first year installs and we, uh, we were really struggling when we went live. I mean, it was really, really bad. And then towards this summer, we started being median and even top in some of the metrics when compared to first year mm -hmm. installs. So now we're, we, as Terry pointed out, this is to mature Epic users. There's no newbies in here. Right. And so uh, I just want to make sure everybody's clear because we did uh, show a lot of presentations over the summer about how well we had improved to, to the first year metrics. Is there a payer mix uh, impact on our AR days such that, let's say, because we have so much Medi-Cal, uh, that might slow down the process compared to the average Epic user? Manage Medi-Cal does pretty, does pretty well. And we, we, I think actually Terry's gonna make a few comments with that. Our fee-for-service Medi-Cal tends to be slower, but it's not as big of a portion of our payer mix. Um, but those are, that is a fair uh, mm -hmm. comment. Um, uh, we can compare to other safety net hospitals, which is what um, I gave last time uh, post-COVID. Um, Terry's going to, as a response to a request of someone uh, from the finance team, wanted to look at a different comparison, maybe just California. We weren't able to get California safety nets. Terry will go into that. But uh, the safety net, to me, is a better comparison because of the payer mix. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can I, um, can I ask a question about this 340B thing? Does this yeah. impact every other EPIC uh, institution? Is this something that's unique to us because we're public? It, it is for Medi-Cal fee-for-service billing. So mm -hmm. if you bill Medi-Cal fee-for-service, which is mostly all outpatient, you are subject to 340B rules and regulations. We had an issue that caused us to be uh, mm -hmm. in this situation, which I think I think your next slide goes into that. Yes, here I can talk a little more about that. Um, but first, our candidate for billing, these are our AR days with being held um, in candidate for billing, so everything that can be billed but has an error on it. So what's really impacting us right now is our um, 340B hold. So, we uh, realized that we were not billing um, correctly for um, 340 340B drugs, which means on the claim for Medi-Cal fee-for-service, we are required to bill um, the total actual acquisition cost and not the markup, which we do for all of our patients. So. This regulation, I believe, went into effect in 2017. We received a letter from the Department of Health Care Services asking us to do a self-audit 
And um, that's what we're doing right now. And when we realized that we weren't billing correctly, which was December the 4th, we immediately put a hold on everything till we could figure it out, which was the right thing to do because we weren't billing compliantly. So we needed to stop. And we have um, been working on this since December 4th. It's involved compliance, revenue integrity, pharmacy, Epic. So there's a large group working on this. And we're hoping that next week um, we'll have our solution and we can review that, do some testing and get our claims out. Um, when I did this slide, we were holding about $11.3 million. That's affecting our AR. As of today, that number is $13.8 million. So it's starting to have a big impact on all of our numbers. But we're almost there with um, the Epic solution on how to get these claims billed correctly so we can get them out as soon as possible. Um, denials is one of our other main focuses. We have a, a, an awesome uh, work group every Thursday, integrated all key stakeholders throughout the organization because denials can happen for any reason at all. Um, right now, our open denials in the last 60 days, the lowest we were was 6.6 .6 days. And then we went to 7.9. Now we're at 6.9. So it does fluctuate, but we did come down one AR day since um, since December. So some of the things affecting us is um, we're seeing Alameda Alliance for Health denying for medical necessity, no authorization, late notification, those types of things. So our case management is on this and they are actively appealing these because they feel that we're denied in error. So when we looked at some of these, it's like, okay, we do have the authorization. Why were we denied for authorization? Um, it was clear this patient was medically necessary to be here. Why were we denied for medical necessity? So um, right now we're appealing uh, $2.4 million, but there is more since I've done this slide, which was about two weeks ago. So we meet with um, Alameda Alliance for Health to review these denials. We sent them a spreadsheet. They went and checked status. They sent it back to us. We have more questions. So. This has been going on with that spreadsheet since December. So they're coming back with more detail as to why we were denied for no auth when we in fact did have the auth. So we really need to push this and not accept that as okay and really appeal this and prove our case, which is what is happening right now. I'm also trying to set up um, standing joint operations committee meetings with Alameda Alliance for Health. Once we get past these denials, just ongoing, you know, good communication, talking about claims, delays, anything affecting our accounts receivable. So I'm waiting for them to come back with some times and days that may work for them. And maybe it's a quarterly meeting. Um, other payers were appealing, Blue Cross, Brown and Tolan, Medi-Cal is starting to appeal for some odd reasons that they shouldn't appeal for. So um, we're working through that too. It's not a lot, but it's, it's a trend that we're seeing that we want to jump on. Um, another thing we're working on, and Epic suggested I look at this, just to make sure that in Epic our denials are not overstated, meaning when we get a remittance advice from a payer and we look at some of the codes on there, are we mapping them to denials? 
inaccurately? Should they be something else? So this is just an exercise that we're doing just to rule out that, okay, we're, we're mapping things correctly in the system and we're calling things a denial that really are a denial. And this is the integrated denial management team. We've been meeting for six months now. Um, a very great group, in, including case management, all, all areas of the hospital. Um, and that's every Thursday. Here's some targets um, based on effort performers. So here we are, um, we're at 6.9, the bottom performers 4.1, medium 3.1, top here. So, you know, we are improving, we're making great progress, but we need to, we need to, we need to reach the medium performer. We do not want to be a bottom performer. Just a little history on that too. We, you know, when we went live, we had, we really struggled with getting claims out the door. We started getting them out in March and then we had this huge influx of denials. And yes, we, we did. <laughs> we've been uh, trying to get unburied since then. So that's right. Uh, really great improvement. <laughs> that is the history. Thank you. And for professional billing, um, they're doing very well. So professional billing, um, last 60 days, here's the minimum, the max they were, here's where we are um, as of the 28th when I uh, ran this most recent report. Um, some of the challenges in professional billing is our dental accounts receivable. There's a lot of great work being done here, but our dental AR is $900,000. It rep actually 61% of that 900,000 is Dentical. We have a lot of denials. We have a lot of build not paid that we're working through with the dental team. So we have new leadership there that's helping us dig into this. So we're looking forward to the new processes um, and we're already starting, starting to see some improvements. And here is Epic's um, comparison. Here's us, here's the medium and here's the top performer. So. When I look at this, we're only 3.3 days away from being a medium performer. So um, PB has been um, doing a great, great job. And you'll see here that pre-AR, which is pretty much the same as a candidate for billing on the hospital side, everything that can be billed um, but has an error, um, the, the PB team, uh, their performance is better than Epic's top performer. So Epic gives these trophies when you look at the dashboard. So I just put that in there um, to show the great work being done there. So I'm pretty proud of that team. Um, over here is the professional billing open denials. Also, we had this spike that I have to look at in January, but overall um, we're at 8.7 as of the end of, um, end of January and the bottom performers 8.5, medium 5.4. So we're reaching and trying really hard to get there. This is great news um, because unposted surgical logs has been a problem for us. It's complicated to explain. We've been working very hard with the OR on this in the last 60 days. Well, you can see here December 1st, there was $12 million being held because the surgical log was not closed. Um, and 
we brought actually the OR established a new uh, role as business manager, which Ann Flintroy um, filled. And since she came on board, she's been digging into this and we've seen this great reduction. Now it's down to 3.5 and probably today even lower. So that's that means that these claims were able to be billed. So there's just really great work here. So it was important I wanted to show this. Great ROI on Ms. Flintroy. <laughs> yeah, she's, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're very happy she's on board. We work with her daily. Um, just some shout outs here um, to acknowledge some people throughout the organization. Of course, Anne's right there. We just talked about Anne. Um, I also wanted to do a shout out to Lizzie. Um, she's new in Dentical. She's the our dental. She's the business manager. So she's been helping us with all these improvements in dental. I want to give a shout out to Rita and case management because she's really going after these denials. She won't let anything go. Um, she wants every dollar that's due us for the great care that we give. Um, we um, have a great collaborative effort um, with revenue integrity compliance, IT, um, on the price transparency initiative and always Bernice and HR, HIM director. She's on top of her coding to make sure our claims get out. Um, other key initiatives, um, just basic um, AR management, our denials, our days, uh, really focusing now on our AR over 90 for both HB and PB. I'm really looking into the self-pay AR. There's a little too much there that I want to make sure is moving um, correctly uh, to the next step. Here's the remit code re uh, mapping I talked about. And this is really important, and I, I probably shouldn't have it last on the list because it should be in the front. It's the whole patient financial experience initiative that I've been kicking off. Um, it's a lot more than charity care, which we have to be in compliance with and get our um, policies posted on our website. So there's a lot of work being done there with this new policy to move it forward. But it's also patient facing and community facing. So everything with the patient experience is how the patient um, perceives us and how the community perceives us. So I have um, a, a big initiative there that I'm really looking forward to um, working on and uh, reporting on in the future, if that's something that you would like to see. That is all I had for this. Is there any questions? One quick question. You just briefly touched on over 90. What what does our aging look like? I, I would assume that it really took a hit when we did the, the conversion and that we've bounced back a great deal. Yeah, it's um, it's 30%. It should be 20 and lower. Um, so, you know, we're doing a lot of analytics here to slice up the AR and um, hand it out to staff saying, you know, can you take a quick look at these accounts? They're the highest dollars. They're the oldest. And we've been successful with that kind of um, distribu distribution of the work. So, yes, we have some we have work here to do. Yep. Terry, this is Taft. Nice report. Um, a couple questions. How how big is your department? And then my my other question is, do you feel resource for success? What do you need from this from this from this body to help you be successful? Because without RevCycle, we're dead in the water. So, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we need to uh, make sure we're filling our open positions. Um, we're doing a. Um, 
we're looking at staffing right now, looking at all our risk areas. Um, how are we staffed, um, especially when it comes to like managing our underpayments and just all the important work that, that needs to happen. So we are reviewing our staffing. I talked to Kim a lot about what the needs are. And um, so we do, we do look at that because we have to have the people to do the job. Terry, I'll, I'll be a little bit more over, over if that was a coded question. What do you need from us? Support. Um, I, I have great and support how? from Kim. What support do you need? I'm, sorry I, to give, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to play Santa Claus for you here. <laughs> I want to have my department and the units in the department that they're doing the work staff so they can get to all their accounts so they can review everything so they're not pulled in different directions you know to um to cover different areas i've had a lot of people out because of covid um but hopefully everybody will be back and you know i will come back um and get kim the um you know the 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 the, the staffing that um, i need and we talk about that often Okay. We'll keep thank that. Thank you for asking those questions, Trustee Bouquet. Uh, thank you for asking those questions about how we can support. I think it's really important that we continue to support our leaders. Thank and you. And I got to say, the level of detail on this shout out site about Anne, Rita, and Bernice's strong performance, I hope that they know that they've been shouted out on the public meeting. Yeah because they deserve all the praise uh, and for setting good examples amongst their colleagues. And I will make sure I let them know. Yep, and we tell them all the time, but this is very important that they know that this was mentioned tonight by name. <laughs> so, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Madam I do have a couple questions. Uh, sorry, I'll defer to Madam Chair. I, I just good. wanted to talk about, uh, you go ahead and I'll wait. You're sure? You're welcome to go, I don't mind. It's just a quick statement, and I think uh, you, you, uh, what, what I appreciated, Terry, is you're lurking, looking to partner with Alameda Alliance on how to find out those denials because you know there there sometimes we mistake intention for you know process what have you. I'll let I'll let this group of trustees know that next week the CEO of Alameda Alliance, Scott Coffin, we've invited him to to come be our uh, to come give us a presentation on him because this is an essential relationship for us. It and is. We want, it, we want it to be a good one. So yeah. uh, uh, Mr. Coffin will be with us next week, looking really forward to having him come. Awesome. And that's what I have, Madam Chair. Thank you. Um, my question uh, refers back a little bit to the public comment we heard in the beginning of the meeting about IOP and epic billing um, and how all these wonderful improvements that we see for the overall epic picture will be put into operational use in IOP and also once it's implemented to the behavioral health side of the house, um, how we're gonna make sure that the rollout is smooth. I'm gonna have to um, get more. I'm not sure we're clear on where that public comment came from, so we'll have to take it back and right. Yeah, I can uh, I can just answer briefly, trustee esteem. In IOP, we are on Epic. It is in behavioral health. In the John George, uh, we 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 were had like a big corrective action plan where we were measuring things. But it is in progress. It is in progress in terms of the 
uh, of the billing part of the of the PS and the inpatient John George. But we'll get more specific also about where we are on this with the with the CMIO and and the team. Yeah. So the so the IOP is a uh, is a, a hospital based clinic under the core under Highland, San Leandro, and John on um, John George. When we went live with Epic, we did not implement the, the John George billing because the county actually does the billing. That's you know probably ninety percent of everything that that uh, happens. So we are in the process of working with the county to improve the process and to use EPIC as a source of truth internally so that we can report off of it, understand when we've got denials and be more proactive in working uh, with the county to uh, ensure that we get the reimbursement that the county and AHS is entitled to. Um, my understanding is that IOP is under ambulatory and is headed by Dr. Babaria and has had access to EPIC since its initiation. That's true. It's a hospital-based clinic. It's not part of the, it's not part of John George Hospital. Right. Okay, I, great. If I didn't speak clearly, you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> uh, not, not in, I'm not at 100% today. <laughs> so right. anyway, um, yeah, so the, the clinic w went live with Epic. I'm not sure what that public comment was about, so we'll have to go take that back. We can see that where bills are going out the door um, for IOP. So, okay, that's great. I know we're going to have a deeper dive into IOP and, and an upcoming meeting um, date to be set later. Okay, we will. If there's any further questions, uh, we will close out this item and move on to C3, the special report about tri price transparency. COVID payer mix, post-COVID charges, and payment comparisons to California mm -hmm. Epic customers. Mm -hmm. Okay, hang on, let me share a moment. This was a special request um, from the Finance Committee, so I wanted to circle back and um, be responsive and, and give our reports and, and be transparent. Um, it was asked that we show um, AHS payer mix as compared to COVID-19 payer mix. Um, so AHS is here. This is the payer mix um, for the COVID-confirmed patients that we have seen. And in looking this over, um, the COVID-managed Medicare and Medi-Cal look like they're 15% lower than the overall AHS payer mix. It looks like Medicare is almost equal, um, 24, 22%. Um, we're seeing a 9% more COVID Medi-Cal patients that are unmanaged. And then private insurance, um, pretty close, three, well, 3% 3 less private insurance. And then self-pay is almost the same, 3%, 4%. Um, so I think this was Trustees Fox request. Does that answer your questions? Yes, it appears like our uh, our mix of uh, commercially paid patients have cut substantially in the COVID cohort than normal compared to normal. Although it's very low in either case. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, it it is. What I thought what I found interesting was the unmanaged. You know, the the it's almost like the folks that that are um, I don't um, that are not that are uh, not part of a managed care um, um, plan are having more episodes. So why that is, I'm not exactly sure, but I, it, to me, it seemed like it was pretty material. Are those our HPAC clients considered self-pay? The HPAC is in other government. Right. Okay. And yeah, you can, you can, you can see how that is different. Uh, it's actually uh, less, but but I was referring to the fee-for-service Medi-Cal patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and and. I guess it is interesting that the H pack is uh, going the other way. Mm. And it may be just in thinking about it that um, other government probably includes the county, which may be skewing the H pack because the H pack is not a, a big percentage. So it may be that it is consistent with the unmanaged and growing with COVID, but we can't see it because of the uh, the overall behavioral health dollars from the, from the county. <clears throat> there any other questions on this one? Thank you for preparing that. Sure. Um, to move on to price transparency, there's a couple background slides. Um, just to let you know that um, as of 1-1, one, one, um, we were uh, required by regulations, CMS rules and regulations, um, to implement and um, produce some files and put them on our website, which we have done. We are in compliance with the regulation. We had to publish two files. One is called the machine readable, readable file with our standard charges. That's on our website. And then the shoppable consumer friendly um, file where we needed to publish 300 shoppable services, 70 of them were CMS required, the rest we could select our own. Those are on our website. We put the description of each item, the gross charges. We also had to publish the payer specific negotiated rate for each item and service that was part of the requirement. And then um, our discounted cash price, was, which is 50% from total charges. So that is published there. And then along with all of the CPT codes, all the codes that would be on a hospital bill. This is our SBAR that we completed. This link will take you to that. Um, and it shows um, all the work that went into it. It was a collaborative effort with contracting revenue Revenue cycle, revenue integrity, uh, there's a lot of people involved with this um, compliance. We took off some of the dated ver uh, verbiage that wasn't required anymore and replaced it all and it's all updated. 
if I click on this, I can take you to our website and we can go through it together. Or I can just show it like this. When you go to our website, um, it says price transparency, and these are the files. So I don't know if you would like me to click here and go actually to the live website or just know that it is there. This is what it looks like. And if you want to click on these files, you can see all the services, all the rates and what it looks like. Do you all want to open it and see it or how, what would you prefer? Given the hour. <laughs> I think we should see it even if we go through it quickly. Okay, you want me to do that? Okay. Okay. I wonder if I'm sharing why, I wonder why it's not coming up, I'm sorry. While we're doing this, a question for you, Kim, the fact that we can see what payers are paying other hospitals in the area on their own sites, Will that help us to negotiate fair rates from commercial payers? <laughs> um, so we actually went and looked out at some of the other websites. Uh, Terry, I think, is going to tell you there are uh, several that have not complied. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we have been uh, going out and kind of checking other people's websites to see what they've gotten in there. Um, right now, it's just so much information, it's hard to uh, put it together into what uh, what the what a contract reimbursement might be. There's some things that are easy, like if there's a per diem, but in a lot of cases we don't, like and even in ours, when she shows you, there'll be a bunch of NAs. But um, my biggest concern, to be honest with you, was because our managed Medi-Cal rates are so low that people would be pushing back saying, you know, why do we have to pay more than the managed Medi-Cal rates? So, that, that was what really bothered me. It was kind of the reverse of what you're saying. So um, anyway, you can you can kind of see that here. And, um, you know, just to remind everybody, we get um, a rate range, which is basically an, a supplemental payment um, that helps us for our managed Medi-Cal rates. And this isn't something that I got in the private world. So, you know, we get paid a little differently as a as a as a public hospital, but uh, it's when you look at this, it's 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 pretty amazing the the difference in the rates. It lots is. of NAs. There's lots of NAs. Yeah. Kind of a gargantuan document. So thank you. I mean, this was not easy to put together. Well, I'll just say to the public, I don't think there's very much public in the room, but to the public, uh, a readily accessible uh, document. Price, Google pricing transparency Alameda Health System, boom, you, you, you land at it and you yeah. can get at this pretty easily. So, you yeah. know, this, I, I, you know, Terry, I know this was no easy feat. So, you know, you know, this is days, if not weeks of work. So um, thank you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Terry, like, I don't know if you could go into like a per diem day or something in here. Uh, uh, ICU day or a delivery or something people can I don't get around from here. I um, that's all right. I know we're kind of short on time, but I was thinking it might just be interesting because it's something people might be able to get their head around. Yes, yeah, so we prepared our staff because we had to put a phone number. Let me see if I can close this. We had to say contact us at this phone number. 
This is the phone number of our financial counselor. So between financial counseling and customer service, we um, gave them some anticipated questions and answers so they would be prepared if somebody called to ask them any questions. So, so far we haven't gotten any phone calls. Terry, what's that mean machine readable versus shoppable services? So we were required to do both. This is the patient patient friendly approach. This machine readable is from our revenue and usage report and wow. it's just everything. And it's not yeah, patient really friendly. That, right? It's not patient friendly at all, but we were yeah. required to do both versions. Got it. Yeah. But that may be interesting and, and uh, Trustee Fox brought up, that's probably the, if we if we wanted to look at other machine readable files and, and try to manipulate them, we might get some good data. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? Because while this data is present and accessible through Google search, it seems impossible for a layperson to really understand and i wonder if there's a way and this could be like a different kind of undertaking just for the sake of people being able to to have access in a real meaningful way i wonder if there's a way to give some examples that we can pull out like if there's a user-friendly way to offer this information spreadsheets can be really intimidating yep um, you know and we have a, a population that we serve that may or may not even have access to the internet you know you might be going into the public library who knows what your language capacity is your educational reading level like i think this is beautiful i love that the information is here i just really want people to be able to access it if you have a, a vision issue let's not even talk about if you have disabilities how are you going to get this information so that patients get a lot of value from this it's really about what the payer pays what we really need to do is the next step of this, which is to be able to provide estimates to patients. Yes. And I don't know, maybe Terry, you can take that leap and kind of uh, share your vision. You know, this is this really what Aetna pays versus what, you know, Alameda Alliance pays. This really doesn't, isn't really matter to uh, most patients. Right. And this means nothing about what it's going to cost the patient. What is their out of pocket? So right now, you know, we don't have the ability to offer a personalized estimate, but that is phase two of this project. We wanted to get this done, get compliant, and then take it to the next step. So now we're, we're trying to roll out or at least um, see what direction we want to go in and how to roll out um, personalized patient estimates. So if somebody calls, um, we can tell them exactly what it would cost them based on their insurance based on their remaining deductible, based on their insurance benefits, this is what you would have to pay. Um, and make it simple on our website too. So that's, <coughs> and um, that's where I think we need to go next with all of this. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I think there's one other target audience that we may not be considering and that's the taxpayers of Alameda County. Mm -hmm. Because if we are as taxpayers supporting a system that is being in essence ripped off or, you know, overpaying compared to private insurers, we're, you know, we still have a governor who supports single payer technically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whatever single payer may be, whatever universal health care could be, it's important for people to understand that private insurance companies pay less than publicly funded uh, providers. That is incredibly important for people to be able to grasp. And that is one piece of information that will also come from this so I really am glad that you've gone through the trouble 
to put this here to get compliant. Yeah, our payers are paying us the most. Right? And I would, I would caution you about one about one thing, and that is they may be paying us less, but they're paying the Sutters of the world a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the unfortunate juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's why it's been interesting to <clears throat> try to go look at others' websites. Well, Sutter is one of those ones. Well, Terry, I should let you 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 say you you make the comments on what what you see other local um, organizations doing with this. Okay, I'm um, making tremendous profits during this time of misery, unprecedented. Are, are we ready to move on? Um, so we were curious of what other hospitals were doing. So we did our own comparison. Um, we looked at Sutter, Stanford, UCSF, San Diego Scripps, these, these organizations right here, um, just to see what they had out there on their website. So if I, I can do this, whoops, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I should have done, okay. whoops. Could probably just speak to it, Terry. Yeah, I went through this today and it worked, but um, you can click on this and this is all the detail. So what we found that um, of the seven organizations that we looked at on their websites, only two were compliant. Most organizations, um, some of them, and the ones that said they weren't gonna do this from the beginning, um, which was Stanford and UCSF, they said, oh, we'll just take the, the fine. And when I looked at their website, nothing was there. So they went and, uh, you know, did what they said they were going to do and, and not publish anything. Um, a lot of organizations do have a price estimator tool. And if you have a price estimator tool, you don't have to publish your shoppable file with the um, reimbursement rates, but you do have to publish the machine readable file that includes the negotiated contract rate. So it was kind of, um, it's all over the place with who's compliant and to what degree did they try to be compliant. So it's an interesting study. Um, and if this does work, so maybe you can uh, check that later. I'm sorry, I couldn't open it. Do you remember offhand if Sutter complied? Sutter was yes all the way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Do you know offhand what the fine is when an organization doesn't comply? It's minimal. It's um, it's a very small amount. And I'm sorry, I should have that right now. And I, I don't remember what it is, but it's not a large fine. And people were willing just to take the fine. Um, so we went the compliant route. <laughs> which seemed the better way to go. Um, here are some um, payment uh, uh, graphs for HB payments and PB payments. So what this is showing us is um, how we compare to other California hospitals. So when we go look at the charges um, that that is comparing us to other safety net hospitals in the Western United States. I couldn't get both charges and payments with the same comparison, um, but I wanted to ask this group as we go through this, 
if you want to see our comparisons to California, which is all California hospitals, or if you'd like to see it uh, see us compared to other safety nets like us in the Western United States, then I can ask Epic to help me with those particular comparisons. So we're looking at what we want to see us, you know, compared to. So uh, just a comment, just in case people don't remember, but last finance committee, I, I shared some slides that were the Western United States safety net. And people said we really wanted something closer, something maybe just California safety net, maybe just local ones. And we had a conversation about how um, Epic doesn't—we don't. Epic doesn't want to make the sample size too small. They want to keep it bigger. And so what they've offered is California, everybody, all customers, or we got the Western United States safety net. So um, in response to your ask. Uh, uh, Terry was able to come up with um, the payments versus all of California. Thank you for that. So this is showing um, us as compared to California with um, 9.6 million um, in um, cash uh, hospital billing payments per week pre-COVID as compared to current so there's a, a cumulative variance of $30.8 million, which means that we're ahead $38 million compared to pre-COVID. Now there's some things that happened here. Um, about six months ago um, or so, we did a big push to get a bunch of claims out, really worked hard on our candidate for billing, just as we do now. We got a lot out. And a lot of that paid. So since a lot of that paid, it kind of insulated us from lower payments that could come with lower charges. Um, so it shows that we are doing pretty well with HB payments as compared to pre-COVID. PB is 3.8 million with a cumulative variance um, ahead as compared to prior COVID. And I'm sorry, this is blurry. It's the best copy I could get. I'll try to do better next time. Um, but um, this is showing, and again, this is our peer group, which is um, the safety net hospitals um, in the Western United States. And this is showing um, us our charges. So in looking at this, March, April, May, it looks like we are pretty close to our peer group. But then it looks like there's more of a um, change there where we, um, the peer group here is ahead and we kind of didn't catch up um, with them. So that's what that graph is showing us right there. Yeah, we, we were, I think, a little behind in restoring services. Uh, and you can see where the strike impact hit us there too with a low point. Mm-hmm. And here's our PB charges, which <clears throat> is um, pretty close to the peer group um, all the way, or actually ahead. Mm 
I'll stop there. That's all I have. I don't know if you have any questions. Thank you so much, Terry. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Teresa. And I convey my thanks to the uh, PV pre-air team. Like, <laughs> I'm going to tell them that for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for those reports. Uh, now we're going to move on to item D of our agenda, which is contract approval. We only have one uh, contract that we're considering. It's an amendment to agreement with Mission Linen Supply uh, for laundry services dated this term is going to be April 1st, 2020 through December 31st, 2022. So a year and a half and the estimated impact is uh, $2.5 million. Um, Luis, do you want to give us some details on this? Sure. Uh, this is, this is uh, related to our existing contract. We have a contract with Mission Linen uh, that provides all the, all the laundry services for our entire system. As a result of COVID and the increased usage of linen uh, and the fact that we at one point had to resort and we still continue to resort to uh, reusable uh, gowns, uh, isolation gowns, uh, as a result of the impacts that have occurred over the last year to the supply chain. We have increased our utilization of linen beyond uh, what we had originally anticipated and what was originally uh, identified as the total contract value for this uh, service. And so what this is doing is, as we have spent more than what we had originally uh, identified or anticipated, and uh, you know received delegated board approval for this contract we are now coming back to you to say we need to make an adjustment on our spend authority so we can go ahead and complete this contract recognizing the changes that have occurred as a result of this increased utilization due to the you know the, the impacts of of the pandemic so that's what's before you today i i move that we uh, forward this to the full board for approval <clears throat> A second. All right, before we take a vote, does anyone have questions or commentary? I do have a question. Um, I noticed that the, the original ongoing agreement began in uh, November of 2019. And I'm curious how we managed our linen prior to that. This has always been a contracted service for our health system. And so we had a contract with uh, a provider and, uh, you know, we went to an RFP uh, back in 2019. We had, uh, ended up selecting Mission Lennon and uh, we've been in service with them. And so this is, again, the, the term does not change in this agreement. What it's doing is just uh, uh, adjusting the spend authority that, you, that the board had provided initially. So that's what we're looking at here. Okay. If there's no further questions, we can take a roll call vote. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Yes. Motion passes. Thank you for that. All right, we're getting close, guys. Now we are, uh, we have written reports, SB 90 about Alameda Hospital seismic and kitchen relocation, um, which I think is in, incredibly timely considering that seismic issues seem not to go away 
Uh, but because this is an informational written report, I don't think we have to have a verbal discussion. Um, uh, there is a discussion of committee planning issues and tracking. Um, so I will leave it to my fellow trustees on this committee. Do you have any issues that we should be paying close attention to? Anything that you want us to raise ongoing? Madam Chair, I think, uh, you know, the Whipley report is going to be essential for us to review together. The question is, uh, being gargantuan in size, whether that would require a special meeting of the full board, because I think Whipley is pertinent to the entirety of us uh, as the governing body for this organization. So I'll defer to your expertise, as well as our CFO, as well as our CEO, as to the venue in which we hear uh, from this really essential economic evaluation of our system. I just don't know if we can do it within the context of finance committee uh, because it's, it's, it's going to be a beast. I think uh, because of all the comments you made, we should probably do it in its own standalone meeting. Uh, and I know we're going to discuss IOP at a certain point, and that's going to be a big one. And WIFLI is also a big one, especially if we want to get into part phase one and phase two. Um, is, that a, is that a possible topic for the retreat when, when we'll have more time or can it wait that long? I think, you know, we I actually haven't gotten the final date on when Whipley may be finished, um, but that might be appropriate. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if it's helpful to have that before the governance reauthorization, the you know recommendations come out, I thought we were going to have it this month. Kim, am I mistaken about the Wifty? They're they're close to being done. Um, uh, I think now what's what's happening is because we have all those allocation tables and we're you know we've had to uh, we're not mapped to separate entities, so we've had to do a lot of work and we've been tweaking those to get them right. But um, they're ready. They're giving a status. They gave a status report this morning, um, and I think that there's a few loose ends. But I bet they would be wrapped up in probably the next several weeks. Yeah, because their part one was so succinct and so important, and we just all felt like, oh my gosh, like the the county has to hear this like from from that. So I would. I, and I don't know how, because I do think it needs to be brought to the full board and like what mechanism we need to have to do that in, but it would be helpful if that info could inform some of the recommendations if that's going to come. <clears throat> and I also think it's important too that there's time in there for the executive leadership team to, to review it as well, because it, you exactly. know, we are looking at the each individual entity and the P&L. Yeah. And how I mean, allocations can, will be. Yeah, it can't come hot, hot off the press and then we do it here. I think the ELT needs to digest it and the implications because Whipley will inform so much of our decision making and our and our planning from IOP to the governance structure and all that. So it's really an, a, an essential piece of data for all of us. Right. And, and we should be allowed to digest. Agreed. Do you have a opinion or comment, uh, sir, CEO? I, I'm grateful for the, the acknowledgement that 
it can't come hot off the press, I think is what you said, Chair Bouquet. I really would like for our EOT to have the time to digest. Thank you. Great. So I don't think March would be the appropriate time. April would be uh, promising, but I think that puts us in line for the retreat. Yes. Retreat. Yep. Are there any other issues you guys want us to try to hear? Have we decided on a venue for IOP? Do we want to discuss that now or should we save that for the full board? I, I think that'll be a, that'll be borne out in the full board discussion at, at the executive committee report. And this discussion will inform that discussion because having an IOP discussion uh, without the financial finances might might be, it would be incomplete is how I would probably say it. Indeed. <clears throat> All right, hearing no other concerns, uh, do I hear a motion to adjourn? So move. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Uh, this is a great meeting.